the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today again. It's my pleasure to be here with all of you. Here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, feel free to give us a call, 501-823-0965. Again, 501-823-0965. We are going to start the day talking about a small topic The end of Western civilization, people. The end of the world as we know it. That's what we're going to start talking about. What what am I talking about? Someone sent me a copy of the application that a student must fill out if he wants to go to law school in our nation's capital at the University of Washington, D.C. Law School. All right. No big deal. Right, and it lists the application deadlines. It tells you, of course, you have to have an undergraduate degree. You got to take the the exam to get into law school. As you may know, the SATs are for for college. Well, the LSATs are for law school. L being law. Okay, you got to do certain other paperwork. You got to get some letters of recommendation. You got to write a personal statement. So far, the walls of Jericho are not falling down. And then the next one, I have to read this to you because, folks, you can't make this up. Fiction is more believable than this. Please provide the following. Injustice essay. One or two pages, double-spaced, in your own words, describe some significant form of injustice to which you were personally subjected or that you directly witnessed. Explain how you responded to this injustice at the time. And now upon reflection, is there anything that you would have done differently? The injustice essay. It's a culture, folks, of victimization. Tell us how you are a victim. You don't know how? You don't know you're a victim? Trust us. Let us tell you. Either you or the person next to you, according to this application, is a victim and you better be aware of it. Oh, and by the way, no doubt you probably were surprised by the victimization um, attitude that you confronted. So what'd you do wrong? So victimhood twice. Victim that you need to discuss. And then how you didn't respond correctly and how you'd correct it now. Victim instance number two. This is what's wrong in this country today, folks. People are walking around saying, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a victim. I don't know even how I'm a victim, but I'm a victim. I have no doubt there are plenty of people who have been injured in this world, who have been victims in this world. But this is not a question on the form for a subset of individuals. It doesn't say if you were a victim, 
tell us about your victimhood. It says, tell us about your victimhood. Or, or if, by the way, for some reason, you were not the victim, well, I'm sure you know somebody who was. Look to the left, look to the right, and look in the mirror. One of the three's got to be a victim. We have a victimhood industry. That's what they're telling us. This is what causes the demise of, of, a, of a, an entire nation. Why? Because you don't move forward. You don't move ahead. You don't advance. You don't excel if you have a country entirely wallowing in self-pity over injustice that they have suffered whether or not they suffered an injustice. This is the irony of ironies. There's plenty of injustice to go around, and it takes a, a over-the-cliff, cliff, left-of-center law school to explode that notion so broadly that it makes those who, have actually, who are actually victims melt into the background. This is an insult to real victims. Tell us about your victimhood. Let's read that again. In your own words, describe some significant form of injustice to which you were personally subjected. Or you saw some. Significant injustice. By the way, by the way, to people that are 21, 22, 23 years old. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? This is what's wrong in America today. We should not be focused on self-pity, on wallowing. We should be focused on advancement, competing, challenging. But you can't compete. No, sir, because if you compete, you might beat somebody. And if you beat somebody, guess what happens? Oh, that person doesn't feel so good. That's why everybody gets a participation trophy now. No first place, no last place, every place. This is what I'm talking about. Thank goodness that this path that this country had been on has been diverted by this president. The, The sense of victimization was becoming established under the Obama administration, and would have been solidified had Hillary won. Think about what the Obama administration told universities and schools, high schools, junior high schools, elementary schools. Whatever gender you think you are, that's the bathroom you get to use. Now, I'm not someone who takes issue with an individual who has whatever view of themselves they have, more power to you, baby. Knock yourself out. Do whatever you want as long as you don't infringe on my rights or my sister's rights or my daughter's rights. And why do I pick sister and daughter? Because let's be frank. We are more concerned as we should be when someone who is biologically male, anatomically male, walks into the women's 
or girls' bathroom or shower and says, oh, but I belong here. Close the doors, close the gates. We, in this society, have always recognized a distinction in bathing facilities for men and women. We quite properly, obviously, destroyed the immoral and now aptly illegal distinctions for bathrooms for different races. That was horrific. It was awful. And it's gone. But you know what? During that time, nobody mentioned Well, what about the men and women's bathrooms, boys and girls? No, no, those are okay. We recognize a sense of personal privacy between the sexes. And as such, we have separate bathing facilities. But this same sense of victimization, this is how it ties in, folks, if you're not following my somewhat uh, erratic train of thought. This is how it ties in. The same sense of victimization is what drove that Obama policy. Why? Let me explain. Because it's one thing to say, I as an individual was born anatomically male, but I view myself as a female. All right, whatever. View yourself as a daisy. I don't care. View yourself as a four-leaf clover. I really don't care. But if you view yourself as a female, when you're anatomically male, and then you walk into the, 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 um, the, the female bathroom, while there are girls in there, those girls might be upset. I wouldn't be happy about it if I were in that situation. And the victimization culture says not to the girls who are in the bathroom ordinarily, you're right to be upset. It says to the person who's anatomically, biologically male walking into the bathroom, you're a victim. You're a victim and therefore you tell those girls in the bathroom, you better deal with it. It's on you. It's not on me because I'm the victim. I'm the victim. That's the problem, folks. It's a culture of victimization. Now, take, for example, if you have this person, biologically male, male uh, equipment, shall we say, but views himself or herself as a woman, okay, and says, I don't feel comfortable going into the male bathroom, okay, and then... Society says, we don't feel comfortable at the moment you going into the common female bathroom or the common female shower. And the school says, we'll we'll let you use the individual shower down the hall and the individual bathroom down the hall. We'll make a special accommodation for you, folks. And the Obama administration said, no good. No good. You have someone with with a unique circumstance And we want to create a solution for that? No good. Everybody else has to bend to the culture of victimization. Because that person says, I feel like a victim if I have to use the the third alternative bathroom, even though there's one bathroom designed for um, 
people born anatomically male and one for those born anatomically female. And now we've come up with a third alternative for somebody who doesn't quite fit that mold. No good. No good because I'm the victim. That was the Obama administration in a nutshell. And finally, we have turned that direction. We are moving away from the culture of victimization. Folks, let me also be clear about this, because I think conservatives, and I am among them, sometimes miss this point. There are people who do things and act in ways for their own personal choices, whatever it may be, that you might not agree with. You have someone born anatomically a male and is views him or herself as a female. You heard what I said about it. More power to you. You don't have to agree with that person, but don't treat that person poorly. You respect that person. You say, have a nice day. Welcome. Goodbye. Hello. You treat that person with respect. All people are deserving of respect. But the problem with the culture of victimization is when when someone in that circumstance, the other person starts telling you, you're evil because you don't let me go into the girl's bathroom. You're bad. You're a racist. You're a misogynist. You're any form of ist that I can paint you with as the liberals had done for years against the conservatives and the conservatives cowed, cowed as a result. And finally, we have a new environment where people are speaking up and say, look, you do your thing and let me do mine. That's what will allow this country to remain the greatest country in the history, in the history of humankind. There can be no debate about that fact. Folks, I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you right now again. My father lived under Nazi occupation, then Stalinist rule during World War II. After the war, as was required, he went back to his home country of Poland, and then they left. Why did they leave? Because they knew at that time, the only place that was safe to be was where the Americans were. The Americans! And where was that? Germany. So after the Nazis killed six million Jews in Europe, remember I'm Jewish, my dad is Jewish, they went to Germany. Not for the German country that no longer existed under a government, obviously they were defeated, but to be where the Americans were. And eventually, as you can likely deduce if you didn't already recall, my parents emigrated to this great country, the greatest country in the history of the world but if we start continue down this path of victimization luckily cut off at the presidential level cut off when it comes to the directives given to colleges and high schools and junior high schools etc but seemingly continuing at places i'm sure in addition to the university of washington dc law school We will no longer be the greatest country in the world. That attitude will plummet us in every metric you can envision. So just a little topic to to begin the show, folks. The fall of Western civilization. With that, folks, we'll take a little commercial break and be back in a few minutes. And this is 
is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today. Feel free to give us a call if you have a comment or a question. 501-823-0965. As you folks likely recall, when I'm on Dave's show, I like to talk about the First Amendment. I like to talk about free speech because I like to talk. And it is the First Amendment that guarantees my ability to do so and your ability and the press's ability and everybody's ability to do so. And it remains under assault from the left. And I've given credit where credit is due to the left. Historically, it was the left during the Berkeley free speech movement that gave rise to the strong First Amendment protections that we have today. That was when the left wanted to say their things. That's when the left wanted to communicate their ideas. Now, the left has taken over academia, has taken over universities, graduate schools, law schools. Well, guess what? They don't think they need free speech anymore because they can say whatever they want. They run the show. If someone agrees with them, they don't need to stymie it. But if they disagree... Well, we can't have that because, you see, that's wrong speech, folks. And wrong speech, according to the leftists, is not entitled to any protection. How far does it go? It goes as far as the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution. Get this. Listen to this, folks. This is an article from campusreform.org. After a two-year battle... The Los Angeles Community College District has agreed to abolish a policy that limited student expression to, quote, free speech zones. Free speech zones? You know what a free speech zone is? America. That's a free speech zone. Back to the article. Free speech zones available only through application. Pierce College student Kevin Shaw was handing out Spanish Spanish language copies of the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution! The founding document of the greatest nation in the history of mankind. Prove me wrong. You think I'm wrong? Prove me wrong. When an administrator, an administrator, you know what that means? A bureau hack, a bureau hack told him he would have to confine his activity to the school's, quote, free speech zone. The school told Shaw that he would have to apply for access to this 616-square-foot zone. I think prisoners have more space than that. I think solitary confinement is bigger than that. I think I've had a desk that is bigger than that. 616-square-foot zone. Are you kidding me? And that his failure to comply would result in his removal from campus. So good thing these bureau hacks have a moderate view of enforcement of their free speech zone. That's what happens when you give these academic bureau hacks a little bit of power. It's, it's what we like to call the square tin syndrome. Regular cops, you know, they have a shield typically. Sometimes it's a star, like a sheriff's star. Sometimes it's a shield. Security guards have a square tin. Now, there are many, of, many security guards who have been my friends, no, no less, 
they're perfectly fine. But the square tin syndrome refers to when the guy thinks he's just a little bit more than that. Just like these bureau hacks across this country on leftist campuses. And so what does what does the security guard uh, in this model do? The bad one, not the good ones. He thinks there was wasn't there a, there was a movie about that mole cop, right? Thinks he has a little bit more authority than he does. Think about that. And we're going to pick that up after the break. And we're going to equate that to the school administrators. Now to the news. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We are discussing the First Amendment. We're discussing a case out in California where an individual tried to hand out the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution. And some bureau hack said, go stand in that box, 616 square foot area. If you want to hand out the document that defines the rights that you as an American have. Go stand in that box. Why? Because I, as a bureaucrat, bureaucrat, pardon me, supersede the U.S. Constitution. I'm the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-saying, all-speaking bureaucrat at this public school. You thought the elementary school principal was bad? Try dealing with this California Community College bureaucrat. You do what I say because I said so. That's what he's saying. Or she. So after this incident occurred, the students sued the school for violating the First Amendment and brought in the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, F-I-R-E, the acronym of the group. Wonderful First Amendment on campus group that fights for the right of students, faculty, the public, everyone to speak pursuant to the First Amendment. So guess what the college does? Guess what Pierce College does? Well, of course, they go to court and say, well, there's a whole bunch of hogwash. How dare they sue us? Well, you, you court should dismiss this case. There's nothing here. Move along. Nothing to see here. And the court said, sorry. Sorry. You know, when you say that a public campus is not a public forum, and that's what the university or the college was saying, uh, they're wrong. Now, let's unpack this for a minute, folks. If a college says, and it's a public college, says it's not a public forum, what does that mean? That means your tax dollars go to support these bureau hacks running what they believe to be a private business. A private business that you're funding with your tax dollars, but they say we, the bureau hacks, make the decisions about that. Remember, this was the argument that the bureau hacks made regarding Charlie Collins's very sound now law that said, Bureau hacks don't decide whether or not Arkansas citizens carry firearms with a permit on a campus. 
The citizens of Arkansas decide that and through their elected representatives, not through unelected, unelected bureau hacks, through their elected representatives. And guess what? If there were enough representatives and a governor that were a bunch of left wingers, they wouldn't pass the law. But they passed it and they passed it good, baby. They passed it overwhelmingly. And you hear from time to time some somebody that will work at one one of the many college campuses in the several college systems that we have here. Several, I know we have at least two, maybe more. And they said, "Well, Charlie didn't do what the people on campus wanted." First of all, did you take a poll of the people on campus? How do you know what the people on campus get out of your coffee clutch in the philosophy departments? snack room with your six other bearded friends talking about whether Kant or Hegel are right and go talk to some people on the street. That's the first thing. Second of all, you don't own the institution. I don't own the institution. The people of Arkansas own the institution. And the people of Arkansas are represented by their elected representatives. They make the call as to what goes on on campus. Administrators, they're in charge of managing the books. That's their job. That land belongs to you and me and everyone else. So whether or not someone's allowed to carry a firearm with a permit concealed on campus is up to all of us. Not a bunch of unelected bureau hacks. Thank you very much. Oh, did I divert from the story? Darn tootin'. Let's get back to it. The, uh, on Wednesday, this is last week, in fact, the Los Angeles Community College District agreed to settle the lawsuit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because when fire came in, that free speech organization, they brought some big guns, no pun intended. When the Los, An- Los Angeles Community College District agreed to settle a lawsuit as well as to revoke the unconstitutional policy that recognized all campuses within the district as non-public forms, effectively removing the free speech restriction restrictions placed on 150,000 students, uh, the, the, the case was settled with fire. The student who sued, said, I wish it hadn't taken two years for my school to conclude that I had a right to free expression, now me talking, under the United States Constitution that he was handing out in the first place. All the same, says the student, I'm thankful to know future students won't have to worry about being harassed for expressing political opinions. Amen. More than two years ago, administrators wrongly told Kevin he was not allowed to hand out copies of the U.S. Constitution in the center of his public college campus. Fire Director of Litigation, Mariecki uh, Toothill, uh, Beck Kuhn, it's a long name, said in a statement, he's been standing up for his First Amendment rights every day since and in the process has vindicated the rights of every student in the district. You know, that's a very important point, folks. Very important point. I come on this show often and I talk to you about the importance of the Freedom of Information Act. I use the Freedom of Information Act. I've used the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act. I've used the Federal Freedom of Information Act. I believe I've used uh, other state Freedom of Information Acts when, when I lived there as well. 
but it's been some time. And so when we see other people using the Freedom of Information Act, or we see other people suing for the First Amendment uh, protections that they're entitled, remember this, it doesn't only benefit them, it benefits all of us. That's what's important about these acts uh, of, of enforcement of the U.S. Constitution and statute against overreaching government. I've spoken to more than one judge, federal and state alike, and they say the single biggest danger in our society is government overreach. Not criminals, they're dangerous. But what's more dangerous than criminals? Government overreach. Because they do things under the name of the government, under the name of the United States. And if they do something wrong, who do you complain to then? That's why these types of lawsuits are critical to ensure your freedom, your ability to know the truth, your ability to speak the truth. And by the way, your ability to speak garbage as well. That's right. That's right. Garbage. Why? Because the First Amendment doesn't filter your speech like the leftists want to filter your speech. The leftists tell you, well, of course, you can have all the free speech you want. As long as the speech is right. And who decides? Well, of course we do, say the leftists. We know what's right. So we'll just screen out all the bad speech and we'll just give you all the good speech. Seems like a perfect formula. Worked well in Nazi Germany. Worked well in the Soviet Union. Worked well for Pol Pot in Cambodia. Worked well for the Castros in Cuba. That's what's meant by free speech controlled by government, folks. You don't say anything. You don't think anything that they don't want you to. And guess what thought is the most prohibited thought? Maybe that government's not doing something right. Maybe that government's overreaching. Maybe that government's dangerous. Maybe that government shouldn't take my property. Maybe that government shouldn't take my money. Maybe that government shouldn't tell me how to feel comfortable in the bathroom when people of the opposite gender are walking in. Maybe, maybe that government is, is telling me how to act and how to think just a little bit too much. That's the most insidious, dangerous speech to the bureau hacks. That's right, it is. That's right, it is. And that's a speech that they will tell you up front. You cannot say that. They go into court and they say, well, it's very upsetting that you said that. We've got to run our government. We've got things to do, people to subject. And unfortunately, there's more than one or two judges that will vote their way. But luckily, luckily, there are plenty of other judges not going to tolerate that nonsense. And here in Arkansas, we elect our judges. Keep that in mind. When you see them rubber stamping government bureau hack action, might be time for a change. When you see them saying something to a government bureau hack like, you guys can't be trusted. You guys ain't doing things right. You guys got to clean up your act. Maybe it's time to reelect that, Judge. That's the beauty of democracy, folks. 
The people are in charge. But you go ask, go across this country, go up to the administrator at this college. What was the name of this college? Pierce College, something like that? Pierce College out in L.A.? Go up, go ask that bureau hack who's in charge. You think he's going to say the people are in charge? Or he's going to say, I'm in charge? That's the difference. The people are in charge. I worked for a variety of governmental agencies throughout my career. I remember once I got a call and I worked in some internal office that did not have uh, um, a role for dealing with the public. But I got a call. A number came in on my number directly to my phone. And a woman said, look, I need help with this issue. um, And I was directed to you. I said, I think you've been misdirected to me. I don't handle those things. But here's what I'm going to do. Let me look up who I think is the right person to connect you to. Look up the number, look up the person, give her the information. And I tell her, look, call this number. If that's not the right person and that, and, and that person can't direct you to the right person, here's my direct dial. Call me back and we'll do this again until we get it right. Now, was that my job? In the narrow sense, it wasn't my job, meaning my job was to support my boss in doing certain evaluations of internal nonsense, blah, 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 blah. But was that my job? Damn straight that was my job. Why? Because I was a public servant and I served the public. But too many bureau hacks have lost touch with the notion that they serve the public, not the other way around. Not that the public's out there to serve them. This is in Rome 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. We're not here to serve Caesar. Caesar is here to serve us. And don't you forget about it. Think about that during the following commercial break. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. Remember, you can call in at 501-823-0965. We have a guest in the studio today, Chris Corbett of Corbett Worldwide Law. And uh, Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Chris is the Ed McMahon to uh, my poor imitation of Johnny Carson, no less. So, uh, Chris, uh, feel free to um, uh, uh, interrupt and offer your thoughts as we move forward. Right on. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. Chris, let's talk about, before we go to break in about six minutes, um, we've been talking about, before you arrived, of course, the very important and ongoing topic of free speech in America, free speech on college campuses. And in particular, remember, the college campuses are the place in which we effectively indoctrinate our children. They are now old enough to really develop their own thoughts, and we send them away into an environment of indoctrination where they're overwhelmingly leftist, yeah, that's troubling, Rob. It's troubling. I remember in um, I remember well in law school back in two thousand through about two thousand three. Um, I had the impression could be wrong, but I had the impression if I didn't slant some of my answers on some of my law school exams toward the liberal side, I may have suffered uh, in my grade. Yeah, but, um, yeah. You never know that for sure. No, you don't. Um, no, you don't. But, and that's how insidious this is. That's right. You know, part of the problem is. That the leftists all the time talk about, well, diversity, diversity this and diversity that. You say, well, well, 
Okay, you've got diversity of of skin color. You've got diversity of gender. All of these physical attributes. And I've got no problem with it. Hire a man. Hire a woman. Hire a white guy. Hire a black guy. Hire an Asian guy. Oh, I probably should have said gal as well. There you go. Here it comes. All those. Zach, the phone's going to start lighting up already. You wait. Hire whoever you want. I don't care about their plumbing, by the way. Um, but you know what I don't hear about? Intellectual diversity. So that so what so what turns out to happen is the leftists have this policy that says, well, we've got our hire a white guy and a black guy and a white woman and a black woman, a Hispanic woman, a Hispanic man, an Asian man, an Asian woman. But not once in the conversation do you hear them say, maybe we should have someone who says something different than the echo chamber that we're in than the leftist echo chamber. Maybe somebody who once in their life pulled the R lever when voting. Just once. I agree with you, Robert. I've got a quote here written. Um, it's about Richard S. Arnold, if you, if you wouldn't mind me reading it. Please. Now, remember, folks, Richard Arnold was a federal judge in Little Rock at the appellate level, the level just below the Supreme Court. His brother is also the same position, federal appellate judge. Richard passed uh, many years ago at this point, unfortunately, sadly. His brother, Morris Arnold, Morris Buzz Arnold, Buzz is his nickname, right. currently serves in the same position. And tell me, read the quote from I'll him. read the quote from him. It's in, his, uh, it's in a book here. Um, it's talking about the uh, diversity of leadership um, at the Exeter, ex- 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 Exeter. Exeter Academy, that's right. So I'll read it to you here. When the department is composed of six or seven shades of fair deal, we'll come back to that in a minute, fair yes, sir. deal, right? And a moderate or two, the situation is deplorable. It should be easy for every thinking liberal or conservative to see that it is only by conflict in views secured by a balance in the department that students will be provoked to serious thinking instead of blind acceptance. The lack of conflict of political opinion in many parts of the school should be a source of anxiety to any genuine Democrat. Yeah, and as it says at the end, Richard Arnold was a Democrat. (laughs) That's right. A Democrat who says, you know what? What about some intellectual diversity? I don't need... Oh, and you were going to say, I'll, I'll fill in for you, where, when it says different shades of fair deal. You wouldn't mean, mean by that. Yeah. The, the fair deal means the New Deal types, the liberals, the left-wingers, the, uh, the Roosevelt liberals. Okay. And he, and he follows it up with a, with, a, with a moderate or two. That's right. So a, a handful of leftists and a moderate or two ain't sufficient intellectual diversity to actually have a conversation. It's like one hand clapping. You need two hands to clap. But the leftists don't want the challenge. They don't want the debate. I watched Sunday morning shows this past Sunday, yesterday. And they were talking on uh, on uh, NBC with Chuck Todd. And he goes, well, we're not going to have someone who doesn't believe in climate change on this show. No, I don't know from climate change. I'm no scientist. That's not my area. But his opening statement is, we're not going to have somebody who opposes. Wait, what? Wait, what? We're going to have a debate amongst us leftists 
to see who can outleft each other. Because we left the, ro- the right on the roadside. It's too much, folks. It is absolutely too much. I would like to see an actual debate go on, an actual discussion. You can tell me I'm wrong. Hey, I was once wrong. I remember it. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but I remember it. It's okay to be wrong. I've changed my mind before. That's okay. But the leftists don't want any of that. They were Chuck Todd was very proud because he said, look, all the liberals, they've come around on climate change. He put up some chart, but the conservatives haven't. Yeah, because they all march to the same drummer. Now, maybe they're right. Who knows? But they, they don't all agree because they're right. They all agree because they line up like sheep. That's why. Sheep ready for the slaughter. I'm not interested in being a part of that. No, thank you. Let's listen to the news now. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today. We have a very special guest calling in. It's David Ray. That's the Lieutenant Governor's Chief of Staff. David, how are you, my friend? I'm great. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Robert. Oh, it's our pleasure. It really is. David, uh, we've read in the paper, we know that uh, the lieutenant governor is the vice chair of the governor's transformation advisory board, uh, and the idea is to consolidate state agencies, to reduce waste, make more efficiency in government. Government has this great tendency to grow uh, and to spread. Can you tell us a little bit more what's going on with that? Yeah, certainly, Robert. So, uh, you know, simply put, transformation, I would say, is really about doing more with less in government. And so when you think about what does that mean, there's two parts to that, the doing more part and the with less part. The doing more part really is about delivering better services that, that government provides to the citizens. You know, when you think about mm-hmm. the, the customers of business are our citizens, and then the, the doing with less part is about spending less money, finding uh, and eliminating duplication, waste, um, and then using the, uh, the dividends of that transformation to return it to citizens in the form of tax relief and to tackle pressing issues facing the state like transportation. Um, and so what uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor Griffin has been vice chairing for um, over a year now, I think, uh, the Transformation Advisory Board has provided a lot of recommendations to Governor Hutchinson, and some of those recommendations have resulted in uh, the plan that Governor Hutchinson's put out, which is the reorganization plan, and he plans to reduce uh, the number of state cabinet agencies from, I think, 42 down to fewer than 20. Um, and so for a little bit of perspective, you know, the federal government only has 15, the president only has 15 cabinet level agencies. So uh, state government has sort of grown over the years and and gotten really unwieldy in that regard. You know, you can probably imagine Robert trying to do a meeting with 42 cabinet heads. Um, I can't imagine that being a very productive meeting, but if you get it down to 15, you can, you can probably have, you know, more productive discussions there. Yeah, David, it strikes me, it strikes me that, um, 42 is entirely unmanageable. If I have a class of 42, I've got to restrict 
the interaction of the students in a way that it becomes more lecture than it would be if I had a class of 15. And that's with me teaching them. If you actually want to have a conversation, I think it's virtually impossible to have a conversation with 42. But that's what we're talking about, right? How government has this tendency to grow and the incentive to restrict, to constrict, to lessen is unfortunately in the minority. And I'm so glad to see... Go ahead. Go ahead, David. Well, I'll I'll use an analogy that I think a lot of us uh, who grew up in the South are pretty familiar with. Government sort of has a tendency to grow kind of like kudzu. Exactly. It's that weed, that that vine that that you just can't find a way to kill. For some perspective, in in 2000... Or, sorry, uh, this, this would be the first major reorg of state government since 1971. Wow. When Dale Bumpers was governor. Wow. And... 71, when Governor Bumpers reorganized state government, he re- he reduced state agencies uh, from the number of state agencies mm-hmm. from 60 all the way down to 13. Wow. So at, in 1971, we got down to 13 cabinet agencies, and now we're back up to 42. So, if, you know, you sort of ask yourself how we got from 60 in uh, before 1971 down to 13, and now we're back at 42. That sort of speaks to the... Uh, innate you know nature of government to sort of grow yeah. over, over time indeed indeed that's it's remarkable uh, and I have never been a fan of layers upon layers of government management you know in private practice you run a business and you hire a manager you've got to evaluate the value that that level of management brings to the productivity of the company. But that doesn't take place in government because there isn't, there's not a bottom line like there is at Walmart, like there is at Target, like there is at some business. And so there is this tendency to grow the layers of management as well. So not only do we have more stovepipes uh, like we are just talking about now, but then within every stovepipe, there seems to be growing layers of management. Is this transformation project addressing that concern at all? Yeah, so you make a really good point that transformation is hard because government is immune to most of the market forces like Mm -hmm. competition. You know, FedEx and UPS, they're constantly innovating, uh, trying to find better ways and more efficient ways to to do business. But state government is is immune from that. There's no there's no uh, rival state government, you know, on the other side of Pinnacle Mountain that's ready to swoop in and take over if the state of Arkansas you know, deliver subpar services to its citizens. Mm-hmm. The only way that you can stimulate market competition in state government is really to have energetic leadership, and that's what um, Lieutenant Governor Griffin is trying to do through uh, just pushing so hard for transformation. And there's really there's really some important reasons why we have to transform state government and enact reforms that will allow us to do more with less. First of all, we have a moral obligation to spend taxpayer dollars wisely, just off the bat, if you're, Amen. Force, you know, if you're if you're taking people's money by force, you have a moral obligation to spend it wisely. And the second reason is that improved transformation is going to result in in services that are more responsive, transparent, and, and and a more accountable government. We have to to leverage technology to improve the services that government's providing. I mean, we live in the era of Uber, Airbnb, and eBay. And and most of our state government was really designed during the Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, 
third, if you trans if you if you transform state government, you could actually spend less. That's where we get into the elimination of waste, duplication, uh, finding ways to do the same thing better, even in some cases at less cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you you see that a lot in the private sector. Um, companies providing you know better and better services for less and less cost over time. And we can use that savings in our state to do things like reduce our state income taxes, which are some of the highest in the South. We can use those savings. Yes. And we can use those savings to do things like improve our roads, our highways and infrastructure. Um, You know, pretty much anything that people want in, in state government to do, whether it's build roads, raise teacher salaries, whatever it is, it requires money to do that. And you, you can only tax your citizens so much. So what you've got to do is really transform the way you do business as a state. And, and the last reason that we have to do this, Robert, is because other states are embracing the transformation process. And so if we don't embrace that process, we're going to be left behind as a state as other states adapt and, and find efficiencies and improve. I think that's 100% right. I was so impressed, so impressed when the lieutenant governor I read recently had given back some money uh, to the state coffers that was given to him to run his office because he said, you know what? I don't need all of it. I don't need all of it. And it requires that mindset of a government representative to say, this money belongs to the people. We're taking it. We're borrowing it by force. And we should be as restrictive with that money as Joe Citizen is with his own savings. You know, when I go down to Best Buy or to Target, whatever it may be, to Walmart, and I want to buy a flat screen television, don't you know, I'm looking it up online. I'm comparing the prices. And when we see government not doing that, we see government sort of spending very easily. It says to us, Joe Citizens, you and me and everybody here, why do I bother? We have a high tax rate in this state that needs to come down. And we need to get the feeling, the impression from government that they treat our money the way we treat our money, cautiously. Spend thriftedly, not in a way in which they throw it around. And thank goodness for Tim Griffin demonstrating that through his behavior. It's easy to say the words. It's much harder to live by those words. And we've seen it time and time again where the lieutenant governor has demonstrated that he believes that the taxpayers own their own money and when government takes it, they better do it cautiously and respectfully and on as tight of a budget that they can conceive of. So... That's really just a commentary more than a question. Uh, but what's, well, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you mentioning that, Robert, because the lieutenant governor has really tried to lead by example when it comes to transformation. When when he first came into office, um, one of the first things he did was we made a decision that we could um, that that the functions of the office could be carried out with actually just half the staff that mm-hmm. the previous lieutenant governor had. So we reduced he reduced the the number of staff by fifty percent. That's I, I, obviously unheard of in a mm-hmm. state agency. Mm-hmm. Um, we re, we reduced Lieutenant Governor Griffin reduced our our 
uh, office appropriation by 16%, our office budget, that's another thing you almost never see from a state agency. Mm-hmm. And year after year, um, the office under his leadership continues to return unspent unspent money even after the reductions to mm-hmm. the Treasury each year on top of that. So that when th- this motto that he has of, of doing more with less and that being the key to transformation, he's tried to uh, enact it first in his office and lead by example. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I, and I think it also reflects another notion, perhaps, you tell me. That is the recognition that government can do many good things, but they are not a, a gumball machine. You don't show up to the government and twist the dial and wait for the prize to come out. There are certain things that government can do, and there are certain things government can't do. And when we start expecting the government to be our nannies, to take care of all of our problems, well, then we're just going down the rabbit hole. There's, there's, there will be no happy ending at the end of that rabbit hole. This will not be Alice in Wonderland, I assure you. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that, you know, part of the transformation process is simply asking questions. And, you know, when I'll give you a good example. Arkansas, in addition to our uh, over 40 cabinet-level state agents, we have agencies, we have over 315 boards and commissions. And Come so on. we've we've got to go through this these boards and commissions and ask ourselves, look, why do, why does why does this even exist? Is this necessary in the first place? And um, I can tell you, Robert, the the citizens of Arkansas want their government to focus on the core uh, services that government provides. They want government to focus on things like transportation, mm-hmm. highways and infrastructure, public safety, education. There, there are folks who would rather our, you know, who would rather government uh, try and solve every single social ill from male pattern baldness to crabgrass. But the, 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 mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, government's just not equipped to deal with all of the problems that we face. So we have to feel, you know, we have to deal with the, the core responsibilities of government and do them well. Amen. Can you hold on for a few more minutes, David? We'll go to break and then we'll come back uh, with you for a few more minutes before we go to the news. Will that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. Terrific. Let's go to break now. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We have David Ray, Chief of Staff to the Lieutenant Governor on the line with us. We'll be here for another six or seven minutes. David, you know, you raise a very important question that uh, Chris Corbett, who's in the studio with me, um, sort of highlighted during the break. What do you think are the key core functions that government should be doing? And what are some of the things that government historically, in recent history, has been overreaching on, that really uh, they don't do well, the private sector does better, and maybe we should stop absorbing into government? Yeah, well, that's an important question. So at the state level, you know, the, historically, the the biggest responsibilities for state government are things like providing for transportation and infrastructure, mm-hmm. providing a quality education mm-hmm. for its citizens, K through 12, and, um, you know, public safety being a critical one as well, corrections, sure. Sure. Things, things of that nature. Um, I think where state government, you know, some areas where state governments have tended to um, 
you know, reach in, into ex- excess and get out of their lane is, um, you know, we see a continual, sorry, if you hear crying, that's, uh, that's the one-year-old in the no background. No worries. But, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot, of th- a lot of times you'll see states get into um, bidding wars in terms of econ- so-called economic incentives, trying to right. um, yeah. essentially bribe private companies to relocate or, or come to their state. And, that, you know, that's not to say that there's never a role for um, economic incentives to play, but, uh, you know, some of the bidding wars you see between states in that regard are really unhealthy. And yes. um, it, it's a it's a trend that uh, unfortunately seems to just keep growing. Yeah. While it becomes a race to the bottom, which state can pay off which private business more money to come to that state so that the state will have uh, will gain revenue. But they pay such big checks in terms of rebates to these companies that it's unclear whether the state ever benefits financially from those um, uh, those deals. Sure, absolutely, and you know I think there's a there's a tendency among states to overregulate in a lot of different areas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we see this with with the explosion of occupational licensing regulations. Oh yes, across the states. Um, you know in the 1950s, only about five percent of professions in America required a license in order to do your job, and those were typically you know, white collar professions like medicine and and law and uh, things that had to deal with legitimate interests of public health and safety. Right. And now in in this day and age, a, almost a full quarter of people in America have to have a government issued license in order to do their job. And so that encompasses a lot of things that we really need to reevaluate. Indeed. Um, you know how how heavily government is putting its finger on the scale in terms of telling people you know what hoops you have to jump through in order to earn an honest living. I remember hearing a story here in Arkansas about a woman who was braiding hair, and they told her, "Well, you can't do that without a barber's license or hairdresser's license or whatever it's called, uh, which is something like a year worth of study." And she said, "Oh, do they train how to braid hair in that course?" And the the state said, no. What? So you need to get a license to perform an art that they don't teach in the licensing process. That's just bizarre. Sure, that's, well, it's a perfect example. And, and thankfully, that one was actually corrected by the legislature right. a couple of sessions ago. I think it was Representative Bob Ballinger from right. Right. West Arkansas that right. ran that bill to correct that. And you're right. It was a situation where... A woman, I think, from North Little Rock was wanting to, to do African-style hair braiding. Right. But she didn't have a cosmetology license, and the cosmetology board said, you can't do that, you don't have a license. And she said, well, you guys don't teach teach African-style exactly. hair braiding in your cosmetology courses, and, and I already know how to do that. And so um, I think the legislature correctly fixed that and decided, look, you know, there's um, there's not a legitimate public safety interest in requiring this person to have a license to do this. And, you know, if people are, are unsatisfied with the braiding that they get, the market will quickly correct that. That's right. Don't go back. Don't get your hair braided next time from that person. That's simple. It, it's really yeah. this is the 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 problem when government sees itself 
as having its hand in and a role in everything that happens. And frankly, government can't do everything well. Nobody can do everything well. And when government decides that it's going to be involved in everything, you can rest assured that nothing will be done particularly well. But if we have government focused on building roads and infrastructure, having public schools, public safety, then guess what? As you know, I'm, ne- I'm not telling you anything you don't realize. Then we can expect excellence in those areas as well as tax savings to the everyday Arkansan who's overtaxed federally, state, sales tax, real estate tax, car tax. Every time I turn around, I'm paying another tax. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, thankfully there are, um, you know, Lieutenant Governor is – is committed to reducing that tax burden and mm-hmm. um you know governor hutchinson to his credit has worked uh to reduce the state income tax mm-hmm. there's going to be another round of income tax that will go into effect on january 1st that's mm-hmm. a great great that's fantastic fantastic um, the gro- the last part of the grocery tax reduction will also take place on january 1st mm-hmm. um so when you come so your listeners may not may not have read that in the paper but um, so on January 1st of this year, there's going to be about $60 million of tax reduction on the grocery tax going into effect. And there's going to be another $50 million on the income side targeted at low-income Arkansans. So together, that's going to be about $110 million that's fantastic, in, in, David. Uh, income and sales tax relief. That's really fantastic. It's It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Um, send our uh, regards to the Lieutenant mm-hmm. Governor. We look forward to talking to both of you in the near future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Robert. And I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave today. Chris, that was a great conversation, don't, don't you think, with David Ray from the lieutenant governor's office that we just had? Absolutely, Rob. He recognizes the uh, the um, out, just outlandish requirements for uh, people to get these occupational licenses. When, when there's not a public safety concern out there, the the government has, has chosen and the legislature have chosen to to enact laws that require something that is not of public safety, a not an occupation like hair braiding to require a license. Yeah, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if if a hair braider it's fixed now? But what would ha- would have happened if a hair braider didn't have a license at that time? Was was someone's hair going to burst into flames? That's right. I mean, that's it's it's outlandish that every time you turn, oh well, you need a license for this. And by the way. Every time there's a license, you know what comes with a license, don't you, Chris? Money. Money is right. That's right. So they're going to generate fees, and then who knows where those fees are spent? Are they put in the general fund? Are they paying for uh, classrooms or colleges to teach hair braiding? I doubt that. I doubt uh, the latter. You know yeah. that, that someone testified uh, before the state legislature uh, during the last session about the fees that are being charged for gun licenses, and they said, well, we need those fees for something having nothing to do with gun licensing. But we want that money. Right. I, in, in my mind, my naive thinking is maybe the fees should be used to – should be at least um, have something to do with regulating that actual activity. Don't you think? Yeah. Don't you think? But but it turns out, much like a toll booth on a, on a street or bridge that's been built a long time ago, they continue to collect that money after the street and bridge is paid off. It's real hard for government to say no to money, but we see good people like Tim Griffin saying, enough is enough. That's right. And he recognizes it, that, that you don't need to trade your freedom for this disguised or veiled 
public safety. That's right. Make believe public safety. That's is right. The problem. So the government and the legislature is going to be in business by saying, hey, we need to protect you. Right. We need to protect you so much from hair braiders that we're going to require them to have a license. Yeah. Those dangerous, you know, without a license, those hair braiders are running around lighting people's heads on fire. Yeah, but you can make an argument. I'm, I'm protecting the citizens from, from, from these rogue from hair a bad, braiders. From a bad haircut. That's right. right. From a bad haircut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I see. Uh, I see we've got a call from uh, Paul Calvert, uh, Calvert uh, who's on uh, uh, um, 101.1. So, uh, Paul, uh, let's go to you. What do you have to say? Hey, well, you know, occupational licensing is one of kind of my soapbox issues. And what, what, I, what I see when I ask people about this, you ask them, when has occupational licensing ever made anybody safer? I want to see some actual data on it. Look at before the occupational license and after. Did someone actually? Is there are the numbers there to indicate that less people are dying or fewer people are getting hurt? Is there is there any numbers there? Right now, we've got the medical industry. It's, it's incredibly regulated. Lots of licensing. They kill. Some people estimate up to four hundred thousand people a year. How is this licensing making us safer? Well, I think Paul raises a, a, a wonderful question here, right? And, and and the question is, what is the role for government? And whether or not you're on the far left or you're in the far right or somewhere in between, government, we should be able to conclude, I, I fear that we haven't, but we should be able to conclude that government has overreached when hair licensing becomes the issue. So Paul goes sure. all the way to the to the to the per, perhaps the core of government licensing, which is medical licensing, and we can discuss and debate that. And he aptly brings up the horrific statistics, and I've seen it. I've seen it. I I I, I brought my mother before she passed over to UAMS over at their cancer center. It was. The, the, the treatment that she got there, the behavior of the doctors over there was terrible. I don't know what they're licensing, but let me tell you, they're not teaching them bedside manners. I'll tell you that right now. And I think there's hordes of people that could give you stories like that. Right. It's, it's, I think it's kind of crazy. And, not, and sometimes it's, I think it's par- partially due to the shortages caused by the occupational licenses that are required. Well, you, you know, doctors it, that, are, it, that are working 80 hours a week. And there's just not enough to go around. They're going to make mistakes. Well, and the the AMA is part of this monopoly that restricts the number of medical number. schools and the number of doctors that we have in our uh, society, all to guarantee doctors higher wages. It is, is a guild is system. Patently Ill- it's patently illegal in Arkansas to do that. Indeed. Our Arkansas Constitution actually spells out that if, if someone can have a right Anybody else is entitled to the right under the same um, conditions. So when, when government comes along and says that, or some board comes along and says, you know what, we're going to restrict the number of people who are allowed to engage in this practice because, well, we just want to increase profits. That's, 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 that's a deliberate violation of, of the, the letter of the law, not, not to mention the intent. Well, of, and we of, see this, right, Paul, you, 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 we see this all the time that the, for the so-called benefit of the people, it's really a industry protection act, an industry in so protection cases, law. In so many cases, that's what ends up being what it is, even though it's it's sold on the front end as well. We got to protect you because you're too stupid to do your own research and see who which 
which electricians or doctors or barbers for crying out loud. That's interesting. You mentioned hair braiding or other, other things like that. When I was about 18 years old, I looked at becoming a barber. I mm-hmm. already knew how to cut hair. I was pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. But I discovered it was illegal unless I went and went to school and jumped through some hoops or whatever it was. So I, I went off into other things. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, but this is the mission creep of government that we were talking about with David Ray, with others. That is, government always is looking for the next opportunity to regulate. And then, luckily, and finally, we get people in, not only the lieutenant governor, but included amongst them, the lieutenant governor, who says, you know what? We recognize that government has a limited function. There are many things that it can do. There are an even greater number of things it cannot do well and should not do. And ultimately, we are spending the people's money. And if they don't like how it's being spent, we're doing something wrong. And that's and a, the, go ahead, go ahead, Paul. And the strangliness too. And, and so, yes. So one of the one of the big problems I think is that we're afraid of allowing our neighbors and friends to have liberty to engage in in commerce. Unless they jump through all kinds of government hoops and get all kinds of special insurance and whatnot. And I think a, lot, a large reason for that, a major reason for that, is because we don't trust the court system. We don't trust the, the judicial system to hold people accountable. One, because there's not, the laws are, are not uh, made in such a way that, that it's possible, perhaps. And the other is that the, 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 the red tape is so horrendous that it just can't be done in many cases. And so I'm afraid that if I hire someone to... to to wire my house that if he hurts, if he burns my house down, I can't get anything out of him because our government is so incompetent. Well, on top of that, we then we have all of these boards, as, as David Ray was mentioning, and all of these different bodies. And then when you go to them, I think this is a follow on to your point, and you say, look, uh, this electrician, this builder didn't do what he's supposed to do. They say, well, you go to the courts. Wait, wait, you're a licensing body. <laughs> You're a licensing body, and I come to you to complain. No, well, we don't do that. We just give out the license. Well, to what end? To what end? Take his license away. Right? But God forbid they actually do so. Chris Corbett here in the studio with me is a litigator regarding, amongst other things, construction law. And he can tell you, Chris, back me up on this, that if you go to the, what is it called, the construction board? You can go to the construction board. Right. For them to do nothing, right? That's right. And you've got a city license that requires a bond out there, but that bond is actually written to the city. But I know that you've recovered on those bonds they're, for clients. They're tough. They're right. tough to recover on. But if you litigate them, you right. can recover. But you got to go to the courts. But you got to go to the courts. If you write the letters, if you make the claims, it's going to get denied. I call it the insurance triple D play. It is delay, delay, then deny, and then of course you file suit, and then they defend it. They defend it in the court suit. Yeah. Paul, Paul, I really appreciate your call. We're going to yes, go to, go to a break you, now. You were, Thank you so you much. You're on top for your of thoughts. an issue that's kind of dear to me. Thank you, my friend. You have a great day. Yes, Take sir. care. You too. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave here on 101.1 FM. The answer. Give us a call 501-823-0965. The top of the hour. We're going to have our good friend Rick Peltz Steele former law professor here in Arkansas, now law professor in Massachusetts, come to talk to us over the phone, of course, about the First Amendment. And he's going to talk about 
This case that I had mentioned previously uh, last week taking place in Texas. What's going on in Texas? Texas is a conservative state, Chris. But guess what? The liberals that run the the academic institutions own them. They effectively own them. Now, in reality, they don't own them. The taxpayers of Texas own the University of Texas, but the bureau hacks don't know that. They're making a couple of hundred, if not more, thousand dollars a year, and they think they own them. Listen to this story. You're going to love it. You're going to... I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I'm listening. Get that water closer to you because when you vomit a little bit in your mouth, I want you to be able to wash it down. That's how how disgusting what's going on in conservative Texas, but in liberal University of Texas, Austin, Texas. Speech First, a nonprofit membership association working to combat restrictions on free speech and other civil rights at colleges and universities across the United States filed a lawsuit today against the University of Texas. Through the use of four policies, the institutional rules on student services and activities ban on verbal harassment. Verbal harassment. Are you Say what? Say what? More power to this law firm that has taken this case. Verbal harassment. That is so What kind of word salad is that? Verbal harassment. Obviously, the verbal harassment is going to be uh, slide off into assault, I guess. That's oh, yeah. Oh, it's assault, baby. I've been verbally assaulted. <laughs> Let me tell you. I think you're, Zach, are they knocking? Did you lock that front door to the studio? They're knocking on the door now. They're coming after me. Steinbuck's verbally assaulting us. We can't change the station. We can't turn off the radio. It's an assault. That's what the leftists do. They take, they blend these legal concepts into mishmash, into nonsense. And I've only listed one of the four offensive policies. Here are the next three. The acceptable use policy. The acceptable, acceptable Are you use. kidding me? Except, let me tell you what's acceptable. I don't know. Zach, can I say it? On, I can't say Zach's telling me. Zach's waving his hands. <laughs> Zach, I'm not going to say it on the air. Don't worry. I'm not going to say it. The residence hall manual. Who knows what's in that? Oh, and here it is. And the Campus Climate Response Team. What? Cl- the, the what? The Campus Climate Response Team. That, what? Somebody dropped with a heart attack. You better call that Campus Climate Response Team. Are they armed with duct tape to put it over your mouth? Yeah, they got the duct tape and and then the paddles. Turn them up to two fifty. Put the duct tape on. Duct tape clear, clear. We're ready to go. <laughs> Unbelievable. The University of Texas has created an elaborate investigatory and disciplinary disciplinary apparatus to suppress, punish, and deter speech that students may deem, quote, offensive, biased. This is called a disciplinary apparatus? Well, that's what the article is called. Okay. (laughs) Offensive, biased, uncivil. Chris, what... Stick a sock in my mouth. I'm not sure anything I say is can, can be considered anything but uncivil to the leftists. I mean, you're doing okay. How how are you holding up under the uncivil attitude of Steinbuck, by the way? You're doing okay? Know. It's well, tough. It's tough, right? <laughs> or rude. The last category. It is illegal at the University of Texas to be rude. So if I say, you know, Chris Chris uh, works for, amongst other things, ABC Block, and he's wearing an ABC Block shirt right now. Chris, that shirt's ugly. 
<laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Get the rudeness police out now. <laughs> Better get the cuffs. Well, but, you know, they'd probably be like soft, rubber-coated cuffs because, you know, we, we don't even like police. So even though we have police, we don't like them, apparently, to the leftists. That's right. All right. Where was I? As used... These concepts capture staggering amounts of protected speech and expression because the school fails to provide sufficient, sufficiently narrow definitions for these highly subjective terms. They're by definition subjective. Is this the, is this really is this the onion or is this re- yeah is this, right. a is this a real story? Yeah, is this real? <laughs> it's real, Chris. It's real. This is real. Oh my gosh! More than a hundred reports of alleged quote expressions of bias through posters, flyers. Social media, your personal social media, whiteboards, verbal comments, verbal comments, classroom behavior, etc., have been investigated by the university's bias response team. Do they have a red light? I want to know. They might, do they have one of those little electric buggies with a red light on top and it says <laughs> bias response team? And they come down the, the center path in the quad. <laughs> We're the bias response team. Step aside. Step aside. Are you kidding me? Bias response team. What kind of leftist? You know what? And they're uh, towing behind them their disciplinary apparatus. That's right. That's right. They've, they've hooked it up with a double hitch, no less. Yes. Oh, my gosh. They've got a dually. They've got a dually trailing their disciplinary apparatus for their, what is it again? I can't even say it. University's bias response team. I've never even heard of that. Oh, my gosh. I've never even heard of this. They're dressed in ponchos. Quilted ponchos, I'm sure. This is censorship at large. Oh, my gosh. This is censorship for the entire student population. That's it. According to UT, examples of bias incidents may include, quote, somebody creating a hostile or offensive classroom environment. Derogatory comments made on a Facebook page. They're monitoring your Facebook page. Oh, that's bad. They are. I've I've had colonoscopies less invasive than this policy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? A hostile and insensitive treatment in interaction with a campus department or unit. So if you go into some hack bureau hack, pardon the redundancy, and order up a, a transcript and they're they're saying, Well, you gotta come back in two weeks and say, you know what? This is not good service. Oh look out. That's insensitive, Chris. This is it. This is this is once again trading my freedom. That's right for security. Let's so called security, it's nonsense security. I'm, I, I will be to scared make, on to campus. make the government funded bureau hacks feel comfortable in their cozy government funded jobs. Oh. Let's get them a blanket. Let's get them a therapy dog. That's with a vacation day off per month, a sick day off per month, and twelve paid holidays off. Oh my gosh! In light of these policies. <laughs> Speech First members enrolled at Texas have abstained from speaking on topics including immigration, identity politics, and abortion because they fear their speech will be anonymously reported as derogatory, hostile, and or offensive to university authorities through the Campus Climate Response Team. This harkens back to something. I I wasn't even alive in the 40s or 50s, but this this sounds... This sounds like communism. This sounds like the Soviet state. Wow. You ain't thinking right. You ain't supporting Stalin. Well, that's, we need to have the response team come out and drag your butt out. The complaint alleges that these hopelessly vague policies chill student speech and expression, a, a clear First Amendment violation. You think? 
Yeah. You think? Are you kidding me? Offensive to university authorities. So that means I'm paying money to you, a government bureau hack at the University of Texas, and I go in and I say, hey, Dean, hey, uh, registrar, hey, lunch person, you're doing a lousy job. Oh, boy. That's offensive, says this the Bureau. Is, I'm is, offended. That's right. And this I'm is, offended. This is regulation without representation. Absolutely. You, we cannot vote out these university employees. No, absolutely not. Now, what they, so somewhere there's, there's a law passed that they're allowed to make their own rules and regulations, I guess. I right? gather. And now they can make a, these administrators have gotten together. That's right. And created some rules. They got together in a coffee clutch, as we talked about earlier, uh-huh. somewhere buried away uh, in the philosophy department as they're debating Hegel and Kant. And they said, you know what? Let's come up with a policy. Let's come up with a policy, policy so that we're all going to feel good. We don't care about the students. And, they're we, gonna, and maybe they're going to issue tickets? Oh, I don't know. Do we get some due process in the, in the executive branch? But, but, come on, Chris. Do we get a trial? Come on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Chris do, I get Corbett, Robert, do I get a right to a lawyer? Uh, Chris Corbett, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Corbett here is a lawyer. And unfortunately, he believes in, in, in conservative ideals like rights and law and lawyers. The leftists don't believe in that, Chris. It's, not, it's crazy. The, you know, uh, uh, Rick Peltsteel is going to come on uh, after the news and, and talk with us about this issue. Uh, but this is, this is what's going on across this country. This is leftist bureau hacks taking over academia with your tax dollars, with your money. And they're making a quarter million, half million dollars a year, by the way. Oh, it's 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 wonderful. It's good work if you can get it. I'll tell you that. What's the alternative? The alternative is we start having real diversity on campus. We have diversity of thought on campus. I don't care about your pigment. I don't care about your plumbing. I care about your thinking. Now, pure hacks and thinking, that might be a little bit of a stretch. But we'll push that envelope, and we'll talk to Rick Peltz about that right after the news. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line uh, Rick Peltz-Steele. Rick is a former colleague of mine here in Arkansas. He's a law professor who teaches now at the University of Massachusetts. He is an expert in the First Amendment. He's a co-author, one of the uh, original co-authors of the book that I have recently joined, the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act, uh, which explains that law to the public to the regulators, to the government actors, and the Bureau Hacks as well. Rick, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. How are you today? A pleasure, pleasure for me. Thank you very much to be with you, Rob. Thank you. Rick, uh, we uh, talked before the break uh, on the show already about this article uh, that you and I have uh, discussed off the air about what's going on at the University of Texas. Right. Uh, now. Right. It, it boggles my mind that these government bureau hacks, these leftists, are so in their own heads that they think they can sit down without the purview of the courts, without the 
purview of the legislature and the governor and dramatically restrict free speech of Texans in this case. Um, But yet it's happening and it's happening right now. And therefore, this public interest group has had to sue for the rights of these Texas students. Meanwhile, the students are impressionable. They're young. They're they're relatively poor. And so what happens in the meantime is they are stifled in their speech. And so talk to me about, A, the effect of these horrific policies on the freedom of thought, on the freedom of speech, how those notions are founded in the First Amendment, and the legality of these awful policies. Sure. Let let me pick up on something you guys left off with just before the hour, because I I think it really shows you what the problem is here. This campus climate response team that you guys have been talking about. Oh, my gosh. What is (laughs) that? What the heck is that? (laughs) Chris mentions that you mentioned sort of McCarthyism after World War Two. And and indeed, uh, this thing has a web form. You, You people in are encouraged to complain against UT students. Uh, they can, it can be uh, off-campus conduct. It can be on-campus, off-campus, online. Uh, the complainant doesn't have to be part of the Texas community. Uh, it doesn't even have to have witnessed what happened. Oh, it can my. be somebody who heard about it. Oh, my. Um, so I heard that a UT student said something offensive. I can call and complain to this campus. Uh, Do they have to sign it? Can we know who's reporting them? I yeah, I don't know. Anonymous. I don't, I don't know, though. I doubt it. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't see why. There, There is the form provides for that, but I don't know what happens if you leave it blank. But And then you guys talk about the, the punishments. Now, they say, what is the impact of this? The punishments. We don't know a lot about the punishments, first of all. You mentioned the Freedom of Information Act, Rob. There's been a fight already this year between the Daily Texan newspaper and the university trying to find out what punishments are being doled out. In these cases, and it's remarkable. The university doesn't want to share that. Of course, they don't want to share. We, of course, they don't want to share. Universities. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Rick. Gosh knows I no, do no, it too please. often. But universities across this country have been almost to a school refusing to comply completely with each state's Freedom of Information Act. Sorry to get up on my F O I A FOIA soapbox, but they've been refusing, and they're like, oh, well, we've got to protect those innocent children. We've got to look out for their privacy. Wait, what? You're protecting them by sanctioning them, and then when we want to expose your wrongdoing, not the students' wrongdoing, your wrongdoing, oh, we're protecting the students. Exactly what they said. Uh, I call BS. Exactly what they're, they're a bunch right of pure there. hacks protecting their own behinds is what's going on. Right. And we don't we don't know as a result what's really going on. They punish and then they say, well, to protect the person we punished, we can't tell you what we did to him. Oh, my. We, we, we know in one instance of a law student who was compelled to watch a film uh, which criticized narrow views of masculinity. Oh, my God. So, wow. And then, oh, my God. And then to write a reflection paper about the film. What was that movie? <laughs> what was that 1970s movie where the... Where Clockwork it, Orange. Uh, Clockwork Orange. That's it. It's yeah. Clockwork Orange. They're putting toothpicks sure in the they, eyes I'm to sure keep the lids open. open. That's right. <laughs> don't, don't look away. You've got to look at it. Don't look away. Here's your liberal indoctrination film. Here's your re-education camp from Pol Pot in Cambodia. 
And these policies are adopted by these leftist bureau hacks. It's a crime. The head of this uh, entity is called the, the vice president for diversity and community engagement. I'd like to know how much he makes. She well, makes. Yeah, let's. We, we need to make a FOIA request. I'm serious. We need to make a FOIA request request in Texas to find out how much of the the hard earned taxpayer dollars of Texans is going to pay this bureau hack. That's what I want to know. I, I, I bet. And you. there's probably an assistant too. Oh yeah, Chris hit that one. <laughs> there's got to be an assistant. There's a deputy and an assistant and an office. There's probably a staff, a whole staff. You gotta have a staff. You're not serious <laughs> unless you got a staff. You know, across this country, the proliferation of staff in academia is the single single largest growing cost of academia. Staff. Absolutely. Not professors. Absolutely. Not the people that do the work, not the teachers, staff. Sorry, absolutely. No, absolutely right. And so you, you get a feel for what this must be like on campus. I mean, how you've got a policy, as you guys were talking about, where you can be uh, indicted by anyone in any place for being minimally rude, right? So yeah, rude. So if, I love I hold, uh, if I hold a viewpoint that other people don't agree with, you think I'm going to say that? I'm not going to say a word. That's right. right? Because anybody who disagrees with me, and of course, what's the test, by the way? When, when should you file a complaint? They tell you you should file a complaint if you believe that you've been uh, victimized, if you perceive offensiveness. It's a wholly, it's a wholly subjective standard. Of course, of course. Right? And then that brings the team into action to respond. Uh, and, and that means, you know, investigating you, right? Uh, to see to see if you're a, a wrongdoer, right? Uh, and so, of course, the, it, you know, we call this in First Amendment law. This is not new. This is an old uh, concept called the chilling effect. You have these these draconian regulations, and of course, no one's going to say anything unless they're part of the group think. That's right. That's uh, right. It's an echo chamber. And, you know, it's an echo chamber. Yeah, of course, of course. And it'd be one thing, it would be one thing, uh, guys, if, if this was being done in such a way as to, um, you know, th- they say, well, you can't, you can't be rude, you can't be offensive as to politics or ideology. Of course, when the young conservatives set up uh, a demonstration or a little a table with signs, MAGA signs, etc., cetera, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, they were surrounded by students yelling expletives, tore down, destroyed their signs, University doesn't do anything, and, that, and at that point it became a crime, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a criminal act, isn't that's it? That's a criminal act. So, uh, how, when, when the words when words rise to a criminal act, just thinking back when I was a student of yours, Rick, and when, when words rise to a criminal, well, it turns activity, into a, right. They they transform into an activity, meaning yeah. it's not the words. Then they start tearing stuff down. That's that that's destruction of property. Yeah, that goes past an imminent threat of harm. They actually committed it. I can't, you know, I can't imagine what those uh, that group m- must have thought. The student government uh, had a petition to disband the young conservatives. Wow! Did uh, they really? The student group. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know, for- fortunately, I'll say the university did not do it. Right. Uh, but you know, it, it, how does that encourage anyone to have a discussion? How does that encourage anyone to express a viewpoint? Uh, a viewpoint, by the way, as you point out, Rob, we're talking about Texas. A viewpoint right. that's not uncommon in Texas. Right. To have right. conservative political viewpoints. 
Well, and this is not, the, not the, on campus, right? Not on campus, not amongst the the administrators across this country are overwhelmingly leftist in academia. And they tell you, oh, well, it's because conservatives don't want to go into academia. You and I are in academia. We know plenty of other conservatives who would like to be involved in academia. But they tell us, no, uh, conservatives don't want to. That's why we don't have any. Is that your sense of why there are so few conservatives in academia? Oh, well, as you suggested, definitely there's a replicating phenomenon. You know, we're gonna, I don't want to hire anybody who disagrees with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've completely lost the notion that the university is the marketplace of ideas, right? That, that right. that's something the Supreme Court said out of the McCarthyist era. That's right. They said, no, 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 you can't be persecuting minority viewpoints in the universe. I'm going to say minority, it's whoever's minority that day. That's right. right? Whatever the, the unpopular viewpoint is in the university, you can't be persecuting that. And, and as you pointed out, Rob, we talk about Berkeley in the 60s. That comes from the left. That's right. Let's give, the, let's give them their due. That's when the, the communists left. were the minority, and they said, we're communists, yeah. and we want to be able to say our piece. And they won, yeah. and they were right. I think their philosophy is wrong, but they're entitled to say their piece. And now exactly. the, the, the leftists, the socialists, and there are some communists have taken over uh, the academy, academia, and, and they don't want to let conservatives talk. Absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. And so and so that is that is what we have and it comes from it comes at the faculty level, it comes at the administration level. Uh you know, and it's in it's uh, of course pushed. You guys mentioned the acceptable use policy here. You know, acceptable use policies, they they govern all electronic communications in in the university and they're common. All organizations have it they come from originally they came about to keep, you know, you people at work from looking at pornography while they're on the job. That was the idea. Right, right. right? The AUP. Right. But now you see it contorted to this... Right, but this is a student who happens... A student happens to live on campus, is not in class, is in his dorm room, he wants to look up something on the internet, he wants to post something on his Facebook, that's not the same as an employee looking at bad stuff while on the job. Right. This is that blurring alliance you're talking about. You know, all, all, all the way from down from, you know, things, uh, as you, you're saying, Chris, uh, something that we would say a physical assault. We have right. a bright line there. You know, now, now there's no more bright line. Now we just, we're going to look at, at whatever you're doing, whatever you're communicating, whatever you're thinking, if we could figure that out. Uh, and if we disagree with it, it's not acceptable. So, so, and if you post on your Facebook page at the University of Texas, your personal, private Facebook page Something that another student at the UT who is a friend of yours in terms of the Facebook so that he can see what you've posted, um, something that he doesn't like, the administration is going to be your Facebook police. Is that right? I suppose suppose the campus climate response team will be called on to investigate. Oh, my goodness. They're going to show up in their little golf buggy. Hey, that's a, that's that brings they, up a good point. Could they actually go out there and search that? Could they search your university email? Could they have the right to so. do that? Yeah. That's I would a think the university, you know, they might have some trouble getting to your, getting into your uh, password-protected uh, uh, social media accounts and such. But right, what happens right. if it's open? Don't people have these things well, open? And, and why shouldn't they? Right. right? I mean, why, why shouldn't a university student be free to tweet Whatever of uh, the political views, whatever ideological views, religious views, he or she wants to put out there. Oh, he's got to be, Rick. He's yeah. got to be free to do that. That's the whole point of, of a university. Rick, hold the line. 
we're going to take a break and come back and we're going to continue this conversation, okay? Certainly. Thank you. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today. We're on the line with Rick Pelt-Steele, law professor at the University of Massachusetts. We're talking about First Amendment issues and the speech restriction policies at the University of Texas. Rick, during the break, I did a quick search and I found, according to this um, Texas newspaper, the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement, I believe, at the university system, it's not clear to me, has 94 employees. Are you there, Rick? Did we lose Rick? We got Rick on the line, Zach? Hello? Well, we'll see if we can get Rick back on the line. Uh, I I don't know why. uh, uh, You know how I am with the technology. Meanwhile, Chris, 94 employees. It's outrageous. Right? And this is what we're talking about. What did we start today's show with, folks? We started today's show with a culture of victimization. And now, what do we see? We see an industry of victimization built around a culture of victimization. We, we talked about how at the University of Washington, D.C., you've got to write uh, uh, an essay saying you have suffered an injustice. And now they have, an, they have a whole department of injustice to root out offensive speech, to root out uncivil speech, to root out rude speech. Blows my mind, Rob. Blows right, my mind. Right? Rick, do we have you back on the line? I'm back with you. Yes, yeah. Rob, thanks. Um, so uh, we were talking, I, I looked up University of Texas at Austin Departments, the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement, 94 employees. Oh, my goodness. 94 <laughs> Rick, I, I think that's more employees than your entire law school. Easily. <laughs> 94 employees. And this, I, I started the show talking about the University of Washington, D.C. and how you have to write, if you're applying to law school there, a, a statement on an injustice that you've suffered because we're living in a culture of victimization. And now we see built around that culture an industry of victimization. It is. It is indeed. Talk to us about how these policies quite clearly violate the First Amendment and likely the state versions thereof as well. Absolutely. And, and, and they do. And that's what's really kind of shocking here is that this, I mean, I'd like to tell you this policy is new. They adopted the policy and then this organization sued. Not true. This policy has been around for a long time. There are policies like them on our campuses throughout the country. They're not challenged because who, who can? Uh, you're, you're a student. You have no power. You have no resources. You're at the mercy of this degree-granting institution. And so uh, this organization has come along, just formed this year, and finally does bring this challenge, and especially as to students, which is where they focus this complaint in the Texas uh, in federal court in Texas, um, the, the, it seems to be plainly unconstitutional because the First Amendment, first of all, the Supreme Court has established that the First Amendment freedom of speech pertains on campus. A student who goes to a public university doesn't sign away his or her First Amendment rights. And then the, the First Amendment provides, as interpreted by the courts, 
that the government can't engage in viewpoint-based discrimination when it regulates speech. And that, that's clearly what is going on here in, in how these policies are applied. They're not, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, condoning a speech they like, they're condemning a speech they don't like. And that's, that's viewpoint-based discrimination. Um, moreover, they argue these, these policies are vague and overbroad. Those are technical terms in First Amendment law, but essentially what they mean is vagueness. An ordinary person can't read the policy and understand what it is he or she can or can't do, which I, I can't understand it, and I, and I study this stuff. Uh, and second, overbroad, which means that these policies could be applied unconstitutionally in a great many ways, a substantial number of unconstitutional potential applications. All those are reasons to strike these policies down. And they're all good. They're all strong cases. And I, 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 if I got to choose, I'd much rather be uh, fighting on the, on the uh, complainant side of this litigation. Um, as I say, what's remarkable is that we haven't seen this litigation sooner. It's really remarkable, but to some extent we can understand it because as we talked about earlier in the show, the, the people who are subjected to these draconian rules are relatively poor, undoubtedly young students seeking to get a degree from this government institution and subjected to the thumb, the pressure of these government bureau hacks. And so it takes a lot to be able to step forward and say, I'm going to put all that on the line. Everything I, I got going going forward, my future to stand up for the First Amendment. Of course, of course, uh, and you know, Chris said in the in the last hour, even he as a law student was reluctant to uh, you know, maybe maybe not give the answer the professor's looking for. That's right, course, right. I mean, a lot a lot rides on that transcript. Your your job, your career, your prospects. I mean, it's just it's it's not worth it for any one individual, and that's why. We do need organizations like this one to, to get these people together. Even the students who this organization uh, includes in its complaint, in its representation, are not named in the complaint. Uh, is that right? That's great. I was wondering about that. And being, being on the other side, I, I um, know that they're going to they're throw some standing argument up. They, you know, the government's going to defend this thing. They're going to say their policies are right and they have the right to do it. It's, it's, it's going to yeah, be a tough case. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a tough case for them, and if they can get over a couple of hurdles, um, but I'm more power to them, and I'm so glad someone stood up and decided to file suit over this and not just take it. Absolutely. I mean, they they, they cite uh, students A, B, and C in the complaints and talk about who these people are. The one's pro life, uh, one's uh, pro Trump, one's uh, Tea Party. God forbid. Hey, oh, Rick, Rick hold that thought. Right? And they're afraid Rick. to tell anybody. They, yeah. they live in the dorms. They Indeed. Hold mountains. that thought, Rick. We're going to go to commercial and we'll be back mm-hmm. after the news. Mm-hmm. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We have on the line Rick Pelt Steele, law professor at the University of Massachusetts, expert in the First Amendment expert in the Freedom of Information Act and Freedom of Information Acts across this country. And in studio, we have attorney Chris Corbett, um, also a Freedom of Information Act attorney uh, and a construction law attorney, amongst other things as well. Rick, uh, before the news, we were talking about, of course, what's going on in the University of Texas. It's not a unique circumstance, however. Uh, How pervasive is this problem of... Essentially, censorship 
by university government bureaucrats. Well, indeed, it's it's as I uh, mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. This is something that is going on nationwide in our universities. Um, the uh, you know fire the organization you mentioned earlier, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, tracks this stuff and actually has good rundowns. If anybody wants to go to their website, you can look up their their record on a university. Now they've they've rated. Texas as a red light, as they call it, a red uh, red alert, uh, the worst wow. kind of offender. Wow, um, interesting. So, so there's a range in terms of how, how they're doing these things, but it's not uncommon. You know, the the, uh, complaint, the complainants themselves in this case, they mentioned that uh, two, two institutions, University of Iowa and of Northern Colorado, they also had these sort of campus climate response teams, bias incident response teams in place, but they abandoned them because they said they, they realized that they were, were creating this uh, chilling effect and they were dampening anybody's ability to speak on campus. And they, and they were, uh, I would suspect, as, as you suggested, they probably found they were wasteful bureaucratically, financially, and they weren't getting anything done. They were having more negative impact than favorable. And they got rid of them. Of course, that's the exception of the rule. Rick, I remember when I went to college and I was in this political organization of, of students of all different political stripes and we would get together and debate and discuss and we were coming up, we were trying to figure out different issues to address and then come up with our thoughts on solutions to those issues. And one student, we sort of broke up into different groups, the conservatives and the liberals and the moderates and whatever it may be. Uh, and we were sort of formulating policy statements, and then we would get back together in the center of the room and discuss and debate them. It was all very friendly. And one student, not knowing any better, said, oh, I, I, I really have the answer to this problem, and it's such a, an effective answer, I'm going to call it the final solution. Now, as you, Rick, know, the final solution is what the Nazis called the plan to kill the Jews. But the student didn't know this. He's a college student. Right. I don't know where he was from, but, you know, he's from a small enough place that he never heard that term, the final solution. And you heard some hisses and some boos, and he sort of looked, as he should, befuddled. And uh, then someone sort of leaned over and whispered to him and informed him that that term, the final solution, refers to Hitler's plan to kill all the Jews. And he profusely apologized. He said, of course, I didn't intend that. I just meant this was a great answer. It's the final answer. Uh, it is, after all, the final solution. I fear that that student would have been arrested by the bias response team or whatever they would do that's the equivalent. They would have been charged by this golf cart-wielding bias response team for, for his misstatement. His honest misstatement. Well, it would have been a, a sentence to sit in a room with his eyes uh, held open by wires to watch uh, a, a movie. Exactly. Um, indeed, indeed, and you know, and I think what you what you tell with that story is: look, there was an exchange. A fellow learned something. He said, "No, no, that's not what I meant." And now he knows not to use that term because he doesn't want to. Uh, and his intention is not to alienate others with his ideas, but. To bring them in, he learned something. That's right. And so, be it. Well, that's right. We would have people learn something. That's on right. A campus exchange. That's right. Oh, you know yeah. that 
that when I, you remind me of something else. You remind me when I was a student in class, and it was a small class, and I said something referring to um, the the race, the category of Asians, but I didn't say Asians. I said Orientals. I didn't know. Mm. The teacher just said, oh, yeah, that's a good point, but by the way, the term that's used today is Asians. So I said, oh, okay, Asians. Could you imagine if someone were to say that today in class? Could you? The ton of bricks that would come down on them for simply making a a, a statement, uh, a, a descriptive statement that's not in vogue any longer. Of course, of course. Now, I, I teach from a case book that unfortunately we, we and I co-authored it. We haven't updated it in uh, more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there are a couple of terms in it. One of the terms referring to a, a, a person of limited stature is midget. Right. And you're, right. Not, you're not supposed to say that. Now. That's right. And of course, we in putting that term in the book, we meant, of course, no offense. Right. We were being descriptive. It was an old term. It was used in an old case. You know, we would probably change it today. Right. But we're using a book that's that's out of print uh, for a few, out of new print for a few years now, and I cringe every time I come to that part of the book because I don't know what I don't know what to do. Right. I'm afraid someone's going to call the bias incident response team. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I've heard. Uh, these, you know, these things change. These things change over time, and that's okay. But why can't that be part of the learning process? Part that's of the right. organic process. That's instead right. Instead of some uh, enforcement authority. That's right. To tell you what the term to use today is. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, uh, uh, there 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 is an important series of case law that exists now that I think is problematic, and that is that uh, a, a colleague of mine had litigated. Um, uh, you know him, Tom Sullivan. He's a criminal uh, defense attorney. He's a professor of law here in Arkansas. And he litigated a case where a black man was a defendant. And it turns out that one of the jurors used the N-word. And the so he, as the defense attorney, says, well, you know, that's not a fair trial if the juror, during the jury deliberations, mind you, not 20 years, 40 years prior, during the jury deliberations, used the N-word. Obviously, that shows a sense of bias uh, that's inappropriate. Uh, for a juror. And so he uh, s- sought to get relief from the court, and the court said, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. Now, I disagree. I agree with our colleague, Tom Sullivan, who, who brought that lawsuit. But the court disagrees, and the court says that the use of that word is not in and of itself uh, an indication that this guy didn't get a fair trial. But here's the interesting point. They don't put the word in the, in the case. They put N, right. you know, an apostrophe or, you know, asterisks and stuff like that. Well, if you don't think it's that big of a deal, why don't you put the, the word in quotes? It's such a bad word, and it is, that you, the court, are unwilling to write it in an opinion, but it's okay for a juror to say it. Right? I, of course, agree. I agree with you. Right. And agree with Sullivan right. in, the, in the position in that case. Um, you know, what? what's something to consider there is not only uh well notice that in that case we're looking at the impact of the word right because we're concerned about whether it it disrupted fair trial rights right but may, maybe nowadays maybe now we need to bring the juror in for re-education that's right that's right you know things that's all that's kind of how far 
uh, we're swinging in this uh, policing of speech and expression. Well, uh, you know, bring, I don't condone the use of the word. Of course. But we need to worry about the impact. That's right. You know, you bring up a great point and a, and a great distinction, Rick, because the fact is, if that juror is a racist, guess what? He's entitled to be a racist. Just not on my jury. <laughs> Just not on my jury. But that's the thing. Imagine I don't like racism and I don't like racists. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rick. Oh, no, I just said, imagine, you know, imagine if you, you couldn't ask, you couldn't ask That's a right. question. That's right. You couldn't find out. The juror would know not to tell you because he or she could be subjected to the education. I would rather know. That's rather right. The person's views up front, and then I can choose to associate or dissociate with that person. That's exactly right. Guess what? There, there are racist people in this world, and they're entitled to their evil views because what's the alternative? The alternative is that we're going to go around door to door, room to room, head to head, brain to brain and say, what are you thinking? What is your belief system? I don't like your belief system. You know, here's the interesting thing. The the left thinks that they can judge your belief system. But when President Trump uh, um, initially came out with what he described as a Muslim ban, and that was a bad idea, that was a bad idea. They said, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's bad. That's racism. And then he retracted it, right? Now, but it was a bad, and he even said, no, I'm told I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So the, the, the left is willing to, to, to ban people based on their beliefs. Uh, but when the right wants to ban people based on their beliefs, that's not appropriate. Well, you know what? It's never appropriate. But this exactly. is the problem these days that we see in the academy. It's all they. It's such an echo chamber in the academy that they, they all get together. As I said, I don't know if you were listening in their in their offices in the philosophy department discussing Hegel and Kant and, and their echo chambers, and they come up with these policies and they all look at each other and they say, "That's a great idea." I've heard professors across this country say, well, we, we can, if someone says, if a student says something on Facebook that we think is inappropriate, our policies can control that. What? What? That is just absolutely bonkers. A student can say whatever he wants, as far as I'm concerned, on their Facebook page, and it may be horrible. It may be awful. It may be racist, and the First Amendment, as far as I'm concerned, protects that. But unfortunately, these bureau hacks don't understand that. And, you know, Rick, talk to us if you can, because I see so often across universities that universities refer to this line of case law that dealt with, like, elementary school and high school, not higher education, where the courts have said that the principals, because they have principals— are allowed to have more control over the students. And it seems to me that the bureau hacks at higher education at the university level seem to want to apply that same standard that clearly is a different standard. Am I right on that or I could be wrong? That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And this is something that's been going on, um, and it's it's not coincidental. So you, you actually see uh, free speech zones, uh, sort of the uh, controls, restrictions, a new wave of restrictions on speech in university campuses start to come out in the, in the 1980s. Wow. And it was that same time in the 1980s when the Supreme Court started looking at free speech in, in a, it really started in a, in a K-12 environment. Mm-hmm. 
and they and they held they held in, in that environment. They said K twelve. Okay, this is particularly mind you, particularly regard to speech related to the classroom in the classroom related to a course. They said school in class is about inculcating values, and so it's it's a it's a little bit of a top down experiment. It's the teachers do have to control the classroom, have to tell people what the what what can be said and can't be said in the classroom. Connected with the curriculum, um, you know, that's a rational idea. It gets taken carried way too far, but it's a rational starting point. Right. Same time, you know, they they they, they ground this in the minority status of the of the kids. They say because these are kids. When I say minority, minority in terms of age, minority, right? Yeah, under eighteen. Right. Right. They ground this in their in their youth. They say they're not mature. They're not adults in our society yet. They're not voters yet. They're not prepared yet. We have to give them the information they need to be able to be intelligent, uh, informed citizens. Fine, you can accept that premise or not, right? but there it is. The universities took that and ran with it. They said, well, they didn't say not universities. And <laughs> Right, right. They didn't, they, they didn't say it doesn't apply everywhere, so it must. It must. It, it, it's just, they, they, they said, well, we inculcate values too. Right, right, but 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 we're indoctrinating our leftist views. Rick, hold that thought. We're going to take our final break before we let you go, and then we'll finish up uh, talking about the First Amendment with you. Thank you so very much for the amount of time that you're giving us. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. Our last segment with law professor Rick Peltz-Steele from the University of Massachusetts, formerly a law professor here in Arkansas. Rick. Um, I want to continue in the last few minutes to talk about the First Amendment, but and I'm not sure if this relates to the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, or just common sense, but I want to raise a, a, a somewhat different issue with you that was shared with us on the air last time, I guess, hosted last week. And that is, uh, we had a caller call in, said he's a cop somewhere in Arkansas. He attends some school in Arkansas, some university in Arkansas, and they told him, uh, the, the school did, uh, that he can't come to class in uniform wearing a gun. Now, the law is, I've since looked a little bit into it, and the law is that law enforcement officers are, are allowed to carry guns all the time, anytime. But I gather that the university has a policy that says otherwise. Now, universities can establish certain policies, like, you know, you've got to wear shoes to class. There's no law that says that, but it strikes me that a university could could make a policy saying you've got to wear shoes and shirts to class. Uh, but what do you think of this as a legal matter and as a policy matter to have a trained law enforcement officer in uniform for free in class with his gun, because that's part of the uniform, and apparently some university in Arkansas, some public university, as I understand it, in, in Arkansas, saying you can't do it. Let me tell you, you think you're changing the subject, but you're not. Okay, <laughs> please. Tell you why. Because, because in, curiously enough, also in 2018 at the University of Texas, faculty are bringing a legal action to try to say that the campus carry, because campus carry is allowed, I guess, there in Texas. It is. The campus carry uh, is is threatening to them. Oh, my goodness. And so because of the, the hurtful impact that, that verbal assault, or in this case, um, sort of a, a visual assault. Non, it's nonverbal, right? That, 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 that should not be allowed because it's offensive to them. Or, oh, my gosh. Or hurtful to them that someone would carry on campus. 
And so, you know, this is, again, that blurring of the line between, between action, real conduct, doing something, and just, just people's feelings being hurt um, and making people's feelings uh, being hurt somehow actionable at law. And, you know, I, you know so, so there is this expressive, this claimed expressive component uh, from the left uh, connected with, with Carrie. Now, I think that's a complete distortion, of course. Of course. I can just tell you, in a classroom, um, you know, and, and of course, there have there been incidents in law schools um, where you know, um, I would assume unstable people did awful things. I would love to have a uniformed police officer there armed. Amen. Uh, that's my, well, that's you know my own two cents. Right. Right. Now the legality of it, you know, as, as I think you probably know better than I, is being worked out. I'm, right. I'm no Second Amendment expert. You know, reasonable regulations are are uh, being allowed under the Second Amendment, but nobody knows what that means. Um, but it would seem to me that a uniformed police officer who who has to carry a gun as part of his job uh, would be not reasonably regulated. Well, and it goes back to the point that we talked about earlier, uh, before you came on, I think also when you were on, and that is that these uh, university bureau hacks, instead of doing only their job of managing the money and building the buildings and scheduling the classes, they decide that they're going to import their ideals. They're not even professors. I mean, they may have a title of professor as well, but they are serving in a position that is that is non-professorial. They are serving in administrative positions, and they are telling students how they may behave. And just to be clear, it's not, hey, you better wear shoes and a shirt to come to class. It's, hey, Mr. Law Enforcement Officer who's legally entitled to carry a gun anywhere in this state, we're treating this public university and this public land as a private household. You can refuse a cop to come in your house unless they have a warrant, of course. That's the Fourth Amendment. But they are essentially, it seems to me, saying, we are refusing police officers from walking around our campus with a gun because we think we own this land we think we own this university rather than the citizens of Texas or the citizens of Arkansas and the citizens of whatever state school we're talking about. What do you think course, about that? Of course. At a public institution, the only legitimate concern the concern we should be talking about is public safety. Right. And I think that's, that's their problem. They can't say that there's a public safety threat in a, in a public safety officer being armed. Of course, the that's opposite, they, right? They, I mean, we are more safe. <laughs> we are more safe if we have a cop in every classroom. One of the responses that was frankly agreed to by the left and the right when we had these awful, awful school shootings is we're better off with more of these school resource police officers on site and willing to go in because we've seen instances, unfortunately, or at least one instance when the police officer did not go in. But when they go in, we know they save lives. Absolutely. And there was a, a, a such a resource officer in my daughter's school who, who went on to be one of my law students. Is that right? A great guy. Is that right? Complete confidence. Fantastic. Is that right? Yeah. God forbid he would wear a gun in uniform to class. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. I would have welcomed it for sure. Well, indeed. I mean, I think, frankly, it's just common sense. Rick, 
I fear that our hour is winding up. I can just thank you so much for the time that you continually give to the citizens of Arkansas, even though you no longer live here. I'm sure Arkansas is still in your heart. It's still a part of you. Um, And uh, we miss you. We hope that you come back to visit our great state and that you come back. Maybe you can come to my class and give a lecture. Maybe you can come and talk to the government bureau hacks and give them a lecture so that they understand the law once and for all instead of making it up as they go on. Rick, thank you so much. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. We're going to go to the news now. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today. We're in our last hour, and we're going to have a conversation with attorney Chris Corbett. He's a Freedom of Information Act attorney. He's a construction law attorney here in Arkansas. And he also handles a number of Fourth Amendment and related issue cases. And he have he has one that hits home quite literally, quite literally. Chris recently moved to Conway. And his wife and daughter were uh, driving in a golf cart. I'm not going to say to or, 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 or from where, and I hope you don't say, because we will learn shortly that that is part of the issue here. That's right. We have a criminal trial coming up January 28th on the issue. And what's, what, what happened to your wife and daughter? So um, Susie, my wife, she happens to be married to a lawyer. I think a great lawyer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So um, she's on her way home um, in a golf cart with my daughter Susie and no, your daughter, uh, my, my daughter Piper. I'm sorry, oh, Piper. My daughter Piper. And um, uh, she was pulled over in a golf cart. Mm-hmm. And I told her she could drive the golf cart mm-hmm. because I read the uh, Conway golf cart ordinance, mm-hmm. which says that a licensed driver um, can drive a golf cart on a public street, not a state highway, mm-hmm. only to the golf course and then back home. But wait a second, slow down. Why do they have a law that allows you only to go to and from a golf course? In a go- Why can't you go to the grocery store? What kind of elitist law? So, don't, so rich people who have a membership at the golf club, they get the additional benefit of driving around in a golf cart. But if you buy a used golf cart for $250 because you can't afford a car and you want to drive up to the supermarket... In jail you go? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, apparently, um, because there's been such um, trouble out there with 12-year-olds. This was the story that was given to me. Uh, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, unlicensed drivers were driving the golf carts on the streets. Well, then you prohibit unlicensed drivers from driving golf carts. That's right. It's you that. don't say where they get to go. By the way, how do they know where your wife was going or coming? And unfortunately, you know, you know she, we've got a trial coming up the 28th. She right. doesn't have to answer that question. Right. Because it's an invasion of privacy, one. Um, she's got the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate herself. And um, generally, when you know a cop pulls you over, he's going to ask you general questions in an effort to determine uh, if he's got probable cause to do a further search, from what, I've, from what I gather. So, so she didn't tell the cop. Uh, where she was uh, coming from? No, right, not at all. So he he, he rolled up. He introduced himself right. as uh, Officer Frenigan. He said, "I'm confiscating your golf cart." Right out of the bat, no questions, no, no nothing. question, nothing. So, uh, if I understand your description of the law correctly, he he had to have concluded that she was neither going to or from a golf course. Yeah, and in that point, 
The only thing he should have done is written a $25 citation. Yeah, what, so they confiscated Why did they confiscate it, by the way? Well, in, in my mind, they violated her Fourth Amendment rights by seizing her property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, and according to my case law uh, research and some other statutes, the officers do have to make a judgment call on whether or not they're going to tow a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to some, uh, is it? Is it a public safety issue? Is mm. it a broke down car? Has there been a wreck? But here she's she's in a golf cart, going uh, in a direction either that is consistent with going home from a golf course, or in a direction that is consistent with going to a golf course without stating whether or not she was, because we're not going to give them the ammunition that they want. That's right. Anything right? you can say and will be used against you exactly. in the court of law. Exactly. So here she's she's doing all the things that is consistent with the, with the law, and yet they confiscate the car. On what basis? Uh, it's administrators out there making up their own rules. And in order to combat that, you've got to do it in court. You have to stand up for your rights. You've got to talk to the right attorneys, and you have to ask them to take it to court. And and you're taking it to court, and did you get the golf cart back? Absolutely. So um, uh, the cart was towed. Uh, the tow charge was $241. Unbelievable. Required to be paid in cash. Let them pay it. They're the ones that towed it. <laughs> don't right. you love this? Yo, we're going to tow your car. You pay for it. I, don't, I didn't ask for it. How about this? Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna deliver my beat up old boat to your house, and you can pay me for it because I've decided you bought it. Well, and, and let me tell you what, what's more scary than that. If you slow down, and if I hadn't been a lawyer, and if I hadn't had this this newly developed acquired taste to this administrative state out of control, I would have just taken it. Mm-hmm. I would have said, "Well, you're wrong." Mm-hmm. There's nothing here. You've got to pay the ticket, and we've got to pay the tow bill. Mm-hmm. But not now. So you've got a tow bill for almost two fifty. Right. What's the ticket cost? The ticket. Well, she's been. She's allegedly violated the Conway Golf Ordinance, Conway Golf Cart Ordinance, and um, so we're going to trial on that. Over right, but what if she were twenty five twenty five dollars twenty five dollar ticket? Good for you. So, if I may share a, a, an anecdote with you and the listeners, when I was in New York uh, with my mother. Uh, we received in the mail one of these red light tickets. Oh. Uh, and, the, and there's a camera that takes a picture of the car and uh, says the car went through the red light. As it turns out, by the way, it was a right uh, turn on a red light. And in New York, apparently, there's a, the, the law says you have to come to a full stop. So if you roll through that right uh, turn on a red, even though there's no traffic coming, uh, they'll give you a ticket. To be clear... I'm not saying that's what our car did. I say our car because I don't know if it was me who was driving, my mother was driving, because you can't tell, right? You don't know. The ticket comes to the car. So we get this ticket, and we watch the video, and sure enough, and I won't get into all the the details because they're boring. Otherwise, I'd be happy to discuss them. It does not show. It does not show that the car did not come to a full stop on a right on red. So guess what? My mother and I get in the car. And first of all, we mail in the ticket. Not guilty, baby. Not guilty. Not guilty. We drive down. We wait half an hour to go through the the metal detector. We get into the court. Everybody's got to show up at 9. Roll around 1030. Mind you, a $50 ticket, right? So now we're talking two hours of two people's time because these government bureau hacks making up the rules. It's a cash cow. It's a camera. They don't have to pay any money. It's a camera that takes these pictures from a private company out of, like, Colorado. 
And they every time they issue a ticket, the, the state gets half and the Colorado company gets half. Guess what? You think they're a little aggressive in issuing those tickets? So we, we go into court and I'm the only one there with an attorney. You know who the attorney is? Me! <laughs> nice. Me! Nice. Right? And I get up there and I describe to the court. First of all, I, I tell the court how the introduction of the video evidence without anybody there to testify on that video evidence is clearly unconstitutional. Court says, denied, denied, because the Constitution's a great concept until you get into court, and particularly at these low-level traffic courts, they don't, they don't give a hoot. That's right. They do not give a hoot. That's right. Okay? And so they deny that, and then I prove to the court that the prosecution has not demonstrated that the car did not stop. I prove it. And we win the case. Nice. And your standard of proof was beyond a reasonable doubt. I presume. I don't yeah. know, to be honest with you. Because with these traffic tickets, like, the, who knows what the, what standard is. You know what it is? It's whatever standard be- the judge wants it to be. <laughs> Good point. Right? And so maybe two and a half hours later, so that's five man hours, because it's me and my mother, five man hours for a $50 ticket. Right? Yeah, the burden's so high, yeah. it, this is easier to pay it sometimes. That's right. And that's what they're counting on. This company goes around the country telling different municipalities and states, we'll split the money, we'll put up all the equipment, and we'll split the money with you. And these greedy bureau hacks say, oh, well, we got more money, we're bureau hacks, we like money. And, of course, this private company doesn't give a hoot about uh, your constitutional rights. That's right. And they go and they collect the money. That's right. And it's it, about a, and it doesn't pay per individual to fight it. Right. It's not worth it. But then you get some some nosy lawyer like Steinbuck or Corbett. <laughs> they're going to fight that case. That's right. And Corbett's fighting this case. When's Absolutely. the hearing? When's so, the trial? So we've got a uh, criminal trials coming up uh, January 28th where we get to hopefully have the officer on the stand. And um, anything that he says can and will be used against him in the civil trial. When's the civil you trial? Like Did you file the complaint yet? Oh, yeah. The complaint's been filed. Yeah. Very nice. So that'll be... So the hearing will be coming up three, four months out, probably. So um, an interesting point. I forgot to ask Rick Rick Peltz when he was on the on the phone. I I submitted a um, a FOIA request to, to Tennessee um, years ago, ten years ago, before I was a professional engineer mm-hmm. in the in the state of Tennessee. The state of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee denied my FOIA request, of course, because I was not a citizen of Tennessee. Yeah, there are a few well, states that have that, including Arkansas, that yeah. have that rule. And then, um, but um, oh, ten years later, they put in a uh, instituted a privilege tax in order to keep my professional engineering license in the state of Tennessee, I was going to have to pay $500 a year. Of course. Well, I denied that. I denied it, and I, I sent them the copy of uh, the denial letter that they sent me on their FOIA request. I said, well, the privilege tax <laughs> doesn't apply to me because I'm not a citizen nice. of Tennessee. It didn't, wor- it didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, don't you love this, by the way? Government makes up their own rules. Oh, you can't do this. You can't have that. And you got to sue them to get what you want. But when it comes the other way around, and you tell them, oh, by the way, I'm charging you. I'm charging you for my time. I'm you, denying your request. That's right, you do. And I'll tell you the, the 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 most common response when I have a client call that says, "Hey, I think I've been wronged by a city or a county government or the state government. Can I do anything?" And the answer is, "Yes, you can. We have to sue." The immediate response is, "Oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. They'll retaliate against yeah. me." Yeah. And so I say, "Okay, well that that's a I hear what you're saying." You're 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 scared that the government may may retaliate. The heavy hand of the big government. Right. And and when you slow down, you say, okay, how are they going to do that? 
Are they going to close off your street? Right. Are they going to shut off your water supply? Mm-hmm. What exactly are, they, are you scared of? Mm-hmm. So you have to. So you have to have one have some guts. Right. And I got to hand it to these Texas students. Yeah. Um, Although they're for, anonymous. For, yeah, I mean, so, I don't blame them. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, and because I think they would be retaliated against. Oh, they'd be pariahs on campus. That's right. That's right. Um, and they might be subject to some violence. Yeah, that's right. Um, like like those students that had the pro Trump uh, material. Uh, and, and by the way, where was that bias response golf cart then? Oh my yeah. gosh, that's yeah. right. So you know, and, uh, Rick brought up a good point about you know K through twelve being different. But would, would that apply to a a, a Trump T shirt? Um, or a Clinton T-shirt. It's a good you know, question. Is, that, is right? that disruptive to a the learning environment in K through twelve? Does it become less disruptive as a freshman in college? When I w- when Reagan was inaugurated, uh, I went to both of his inaugurations. The second one, after we got there, the outdoor ceremony was canceled because it was too cold. But the first one we went to uh, at my junior high school, they learned. I don't know if my father told them or I told them that we were going to the. I think I told them because I had to take off some class. Uh, to go to the inauguration, and they said, oh, that's great. I mean, they were very supportive, which was nice. And they said, oh, do you have the formal invitation, that kind of thing? I said, yeah, yeah, we have it all at home. And they said, would you mind bringing it in? We'll put it up in a display case. And it was really quite nice, right? And we put up uh, the the formal invitation to to President Reagan's first inauguration. In fact, you can can see me uh, in the picture in most of the magazines, like Time Magazine and Newsweek, because I managed, this was before, of course, 9-11, and I walked all the way up to the press booth, and I'm, I'm in the press booth, and so when they have the picture from the reverse angle of, of Ronald Reagan looking over the crowd, uh, and if you look in the press booth, and you know what to look for, you can see me on the lower level. Fantastic. Isn't that funny? What a, what a wonderful experience. So we hung up uh, this invitation, and I really wonder, given how left academia, including in the K-12 through environment, has become, whether not only would they have uh, hung up a Trump inauguration invitation, but if someone dared to do so on his own, would they punish him for it? Man, in this day and age, or in this, in this time right, right now, absolutely they would be punished for right. it. You, you would not be able to. It'd be disruptive. That's right. I, I just it's just right. You know why it's disruptive? Because somebody doesn't like Trump. Yeah, I've heard from a, from a high school senior um, that they've been um, asked not to wear their National Honor Society cords at graduation. Oh my gosh! I haven't, I haven't been able to verify this yet, right, but right. Um, you know, when when you can't wear your your honors that you've earned because it may hurt some of the other students that hadn't made straight A's, that that's upsetting. Well, maybe they shouldn't give the students A's. I think you're you going to hold back on those A's. Those think, A's are discriminatory against the people with B's and maybe, B's against those with C's. That's right. And maybe in Texas, it, it, you're going to offend somebody by making straight A's. And they should be brought up to the climate. It, it's remarkable. Hold that thought, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, we'll take a, a break and come back in a few minutes. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. On the phone, we have Ford, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, from the Business School here at UALR. Ford, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, But I've got a question for you. You were talking about your court experience there uh, on a traffic ticket and, and various things. And you made the point that a lot of people just don't bother with it because it could cost too much. That's right. Is it true that in some countries, I think England being one of them, that uh, when you go to court, the loser pays all the fees? Is that the way that works? Well, it's a great question, Ford. 
Unfortunately, that deals with when you sue someone, what we call a civil lawsuit. So if you sue your neighbor uh, for damaging your car, and it turns out he didn't damage your car, and he wins, well, guess what? You get to pay his attorney's fees. But the government is supreme. And so if the government comes after you and you win, you're still paying. The government never shells out a dime. So it, it well, highlights how it, you're always at a disadvantage when you're litigating against the government. Of course, we see this with the whole Mueller investigation, and people are, are taking these plea deals. I'm not saying they didn't do something. I'm not saying they did do something. But don't discount the fact that it's enormously costly, even if you win against the government in a criminal action. Okay, so, so how... Can we justify that on the idea of a, quote, level playing field? There's nothing that, level that about it. playing field isn't level. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right, Ford. There's nothing level about it. I've had more than one federal judge say to me, do not get your sleeve caught in the criminal justice system because even if you're able to get your arm out of that grinder, you're going to be messed up and that shirt's going to be gone. You will lose your shirt. That's what happens. I've seen a cause of action, if I can interject there. Please. I've seen a cause of action, a civil cause of action for malicious 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 prosecution. prosecution. But it's a very high standard. It's Uh, incredibly difficult to prove. And the burden of proof is... I can't right off the top of my head is, you know, did they do it without probable cause? Was it done for malicious purposes? And knowingly. And knowingly. So yeah. it gets into some crazy standards. And that's if and only if you won a criminal trial. Right. So if you win the criminal trial, you definitely don't get paid back. And by, and then you could bring a cause of action for malicious uh, prosecution in very limited circumstances. Right. Yeah. It, so what, you, what you're saying is our legal system is... Not on a level playing field. It's not perfect. And, and, well, and, and we, we recognize a problem, so maybe something should be done in this area? I think that's right. I mean, I, for a long time, I've been saying that if someone uh, is uh, acquitted, uh, maybe we should think about uh, a, a more just outcome than essentially leaving them bankrupt. Now, you'll hear people uh, on the sort of uh, other side say, well, an acquittal doesn't mean not guilty. And I don't like that statement. I think that statement is disingenuous because we have two maxims that work together. One is you're innocent until proven guilty. And if you're, if you're acquitted, you're not guilty. So guess what? If A, then B, and B, then C, if you are acquitted, you are considered in the eyes of the law not guilty. And so don't take uh, the, the statement at face value when people say, well, he was acquitted. He wasn't found not guilty. Sorry, that's not how it works. You're not guilty until they prove you guilty, not the other way around. So it is, a, it is really a challenge. It is really a problem. And by the way, you see people taking plea deals in our criminal justice system all the time because they recognize the expense involved. Now, that doesn't mean they're not guilty. Right, so that's the difficulty. I think overwhelmingly, people who are charged with crimes are guilty. But overwhelming is not 100%. And if we have even one case where a person cannot afford to defend himself and takes a plea because the plea seems reasonable but is innocent, then we have a supreme injustice committed upon an individual. That's what I believe. Well, so... Let's go into the hypothetical or maybe even the fantasy land. 
doesn't it seem reasonable then that the government, whatever level we're talking about, mm-hmm. be limited in the amount of money they can throw at a case, given that the other side is obviously limited? Yeah. I, would, I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, well, we've, we've talked about this, uh, um, uh, Chris Corbett and I, many times uh, before when we deal with the Freedom of Information Act, because he's an advocate on the Freedom of Information Act law, and the, the government says, well, we just need a level playing field, so we want to even further weaken the Freedom of Information Act, and we say, level playing field? Level, come off your mountain and come down to the people if you want to be on a level playing field. You're not on a level playing field. You are perched up above with money from my pocket, from taxpayers, funding your hordes of attorneys against little old me or little old Chris Corbett. That's what I'm talking about. Ford, hold the line. We're going to bring you back after we go to the news, uh, SRN News, right now. And this is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We've got our last half hour of the show. We've got Ford on the line. Ford, pick up where we left off. Well, we left off talking about whether or not it's a level playing field. That's by phrase, at least. Indeed. When you go into court against the government. Uh, and and it, it's obviously not because they they are the big they government can control many more times the resources at the case than the vast majority of individuals. Exactly, and indeed. So uh, sorry, go ahead. So here's a question: yeah. Is uh, we we hear all the time that uh, there's going to be quote tort reform, but I never see much of it. Wouldn't it be reasonable to set some kind of limits on how much? The government can throw out a case, given who they're who who they're up against. If they're up against a big corporation. Okay, you can spend a million dollars. If up against an individual, you can't spend more than basically what that individual can spend. What's what's wrong with that kind of a, an approach? Yeah, or or relatedly, the idea that the government can spend whatever it wants on its case, as long as it can supplement what you're spending on your case. Right, because as you say, uh, and this notion has been around for some time. By the way, it's generally considered a kind of liberal idea. Uh, but I actually think you're onto something because I don't think it's liberal. I don't think it's conservative. I think it's about fairness, and I don't know where to draw the line or how to implement this yet. But the notion, uh, I said early in this show today, that the single biggest concern for us, for judges uh, that I've spoken to is government overreach. Not criminals, government overreach. And so we're tying this all together at the end of the show where we recognize that the government charges a potential criminal with a crime and the bigger concern in that situation is not the potential criminal, and he might be a criminal, but it's that government overreaches in prosecuting individuals. We need to be concerned about that balance. Be- and not because I'm worried about the criminal going to jail. I'm not. I'm worried about the innocent person going to jail because he doesn't have the resources to fight essentially the unlimited resources of the government. And that's what we're talking about. Equally so, when we talk about the Freedom of Information Act and you have these government bureau hacks dragging their behinds into the state legislature every two years on the government dime. 
during right. work hours while they're getting paid. And what do they do? They're like Oliver in the movie, more food, please. They say, we want more exemptions because gosh knows our 9.30 to 4 o'clock job with a two-hour lunch break at a quarter of a million dollar salary is so exhausting that we can't comply with the Freedom of Information Act as it's written today. <laughs> and they're going to need 15 days right. instead of three days. Oh, yeah. We need 15 days to respond. And then we need an exemption if there's a lawsuit. And we need them. We need the, the citizen to pay for us to do our job. Wait, that we already getting paid by the citizen to do. They literally <laughs> let, let me, want you to get to pay them twice. <laughs> let me take you back a little bit in in, in your uh, I would say rant, but yes, uh, in talk because you started off in the very beginning uh, and you used the word fair, and then immediately you said, "Well, I'm not really sure what that is." And and I have, as an economist, I have the same problem. Uh, I know what equal is, but I don't know what fair is. Mm. However. I can recognize what's unfair right. when, it, when it's in front of me. Good point. Uh, Good point. And, and the reason I, I bring this up is instead of saying we need to make things fair, I think what we need to do is look at situations and say, hey, that's unfair. It needs adjustment. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay. That's a good point. Because it's very – well, this actually comes out from a statistical testing. You, you, you usually test that it's not something and then – when it turns out, hey, it's not, then we, we go to the other. And this right. is, is basically what I'm saying is, yeah, it's real hard for anybody to, to define and, and point their finger at fair. That's a good point. But I think the vast majority of us can situ- see a situation and say, that's, that's unfair. unfair. Yeah, think of it this way. It's sort of like well, we can all tell when it's daytime and we can all tell when it's nighttime. But when it turns from dusk to dawn and, you know, when it shifts from day to night, it's not always so clear. When exactly is nightfall? you got to look it up in the almanac. But when it's midnight is night and noon is day. And so sometimes we see unfairness as bright as it is during noon uh, of the daytime. Uh, so I, I like your point. There are some elements of unfairness that are so transparent that we need to do a better job of dealing with them. Yeah, I'm, I think uh, just approaching it, problems like this from with that perspective uh, may get us down the line a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but we, we certainly have situations, for instance, the Mueller. How much has he spent so far? Millions of dollars? Oh, millions. Tens versus, of millions. Tens of yeah, millions of dollars. Versus exactly. other people who are, you know, once you've gone bankrupt, that's, quote, unfair. Yeah, right. Well, and you, you saw it with, with the Flynn prosecution. Uh, again, I don't know what Flynn did or didn't do, but what I do know is that they effectively bankrupted him uh, or would have bankrupted him if he was not already bankrupted. Uh, from the process that he was involved in. And so that's a significant pressure. I had a law professor when I went to law school oh so many years ago uh, who said that um, the that he thinks, he was also a prosecutor, that he thinks that prosecutors should not offer, should not offer what some people call sweetheart deals because it over-incentivizes, to use a term that you're more familiar with, over-incentivizes uh, criminal defendants who may indeed be innocent to take guilty pleas. And so that's a, that is a real concern. This guy was a prosecutor. He was pro 
criminal justice, right, pro-police. But he said, we should not offer these sweetheart deals because I, I fear that innocent people are taking those deals rather than spending the resources and taking the risk. Uh, and it's, like I said earlier, once you get that sleeve caught in the criminal justice system, it's never good. But there are certainly worse and better outcomes thereafter. Yeah, I mean, most people just don't want to mess with it, which is going back to your situation, why you just pay the tra- traffic ticket. That's you, right. That's right. You just don't want to be messed with it. That's exactly right. And it's re- it's really unfortunate. They set up a system whereby it's very easy to pay a traffic ticket, and it's very hard to fight a traffic ticket. So what is your incentive? Oh, I'll pay 50 bucks, or I'll take off half a day or a day of work um, uh, to save $50. And the odds are I won't save $50, because as I described earlier in the show, uh, I have seen numerous instances where courts, particularly at the traffic court and lower levels, routinely ignore constitutional requirements. And so what happens if you lose there? Then you're going to appeal again? More cost than the filing fees, $150, $200, $400? So it becomes extremely cost prohibitive to get involved in pursuing that legal issue, even though justice should be on your side. This is really an issue. I I agree. And I'll I'll even make another analogy, take it one step further, Uh, slightly different venue a lot of people have criticized uh, Trump and because Trump has said that he's after fair uh, fair trade. Right. Okay. And, and if you talk to 99% of the economists, they'll say, well, free trade is what we're after. Right. Well, we've, we've never had free trade. That's right. We always have some kind of uh, catches on it. That's right. And I, too, would, would argue that, no, I'm not really sure I know what fair trade is, but I can certainly recognize what's unfair trade. Exactly. And and that's, I think, what Trump has seen in a lot of situations, where the Japanese, as an example, can sell motorcycles to us with almost no tariffs, but to take a Harley Davidson to Japan is a huge tariff. That's right. That's right. Well, I would say that's unfair. That's unfair. I agree with you. Yeah. I think that's an now, excellent I, way to characterize it. Yeah. <clears throat> And and we it's it's hard to say oh we want equal trade because that doesn't ring as well as fair free trade, trade. or free well, trade right. or, fair or yeah. free right agreed yeah so agreed. so we're parts partially we're tied up with the uh, just the lexicon and and the language here that's right that's right and you know that's that's perhaps to a benefit, but also perhaps to a problem that we are uh, talking in circles and the bottom line is that we're getting the short end of the stick on much of the trade that we're engaging in uh, and that's not good business. And Trump, as a businessman, says that's not good business. And you might think it's okay business. You might think that notwithstanding, we're still doing better than we would otherwise. But it's certainly fair, if I, uh, if I may use the term in a different context, for Trump to argue otherwise. Meaning, you might not agree with his position, but it's certainly not an illegitimate position. And I think, by the way, that he's, he's got a lot going in that claim. Uh, and so, uh, fighting for better deals 
with uh, our trading partners, I think is a perfectly reasonable and rational approach for him to take. Yes, that's basically why one of the reasons why I support him. And, and like I say, I've just put it in the terms of I don't know what fair trade is, but I certainly know what unfair trade is. Ford, did you see that Elizabeth Warren has made it formal that she's running for president uh, in 2020? Are you going to be a supporter of Elizabeth Warren? Well, let's see. If I remember right, she has only uh, started a an investigation committee or whatever it's called. Right. But no, I've, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, isn't she the one that, start, that started the thing that you didn't make that? That's right. Uh, That's right. That's yeah. right. You didn't make that business. We made it by providing the roads for you. You didn't. You didn't uh, get a PhD uh, from the University of Arkansas in economics. We did it by giving, supplementing your tuition. Uh, you didn't build that house uh, that you live in. We did it because we allowed the importation of I don't know Canadian wood. Uh, so you didn't do anything for it. You're sitting on your big duff doing nothing, and we, government, have handed you everything. So now it's time for turnaround, time for you to cough up some cash. Well, I hope she runs, and I also hope Bernie runs. But I understand that the Democrats have basically put in something that says Bernie can't run as a Democrat this next go-around. Oh, I didn't know. but Yeah, yeah they, they did something to say that you had to be a member of the party or something. Uh, and, and if that's true, then I think the year 2020 will be a little bit like the uh, year when Perot ran. Right, we'll have a third party. But if it's, if it's Bernie and Warren on one side, they'll split the liberal vote and then Trump most assuredly would win. Why don't you stay on the line for us uh, um, uh, for another couple of minutes? We'll take a quick break, and we'll finish up with you, Ford, if you have a few more minutes. All right. I'll hang tight. Thank you. This is Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. We're in our last 10 minutes of the show. We have uh, Professor Ford on the radio here, uh, economist extraordinaire. Ford, what's going on with the stock market? Oh, <laughs> you know, I have to answer that by with the first caveat of I'm not that kind of an economist. I know it, but that doesn't <laughs> stop me from asking. <laughs> well, to begin with, this is approaching the year end, and there's a whole lot of activity that takes place because it's the year end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are going to have a whole lot more activity <clears throat> to get the, to get their... Uh, account at some point because a whole lot of uh, oh, decisions are made on what the the market, the market is and what your basket is at the end of the year. Right. This is a distortion because of the laws. Right, right. So Tax laws and that kind of thing. Yes. Yes, sir. Does that explain everything? Well, I, I don't, don't know about everything, but it's know. probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, know, but I'm sure that that's a... That's a factor in what's going on. Indeed, I have I have no doubt that uh, just a lot of the things that are happening in in the political arena is having some impact. Right. Uh, outside of those two things, I must uh, go back and say I'm not that kind of an economist. Uh, I have I have colleagues that um, are, are actually what you want to talk about is or talk to as someone that is in the area of finance. Right. 
Well, what about uh, which this? Is, we had we had David Ray, uh, chief of staff for the lieutenant governor, on the show earlier today, uh, and he was talking about the valiant and really important efforts that the lieutenant governor is making to help reduce taxation in Arkansas, of course, along with the governor and others as well. Uh, And uh, maybe you could uh, explain to us sort of the pervasive effects of excessive taxation uh, on us. Now, perhaps part of the answer is the obvious answer. Too much tax uh, and not enough money in my pocket. Uh, But maybe you could give a slightly more uh, intellectual approach to my comment. Well, there's there's always the Leffler curve out there, which basically basically says that there is some optimal rate of taxation that will maximize the amount of revenue to the government. Right. If you and if you start at that point, if you tax either more or less, the amount of revenue to the government will go down. Now, obviously, if you tax at a lower rate, you're getting less in, but most people don't recognize that beyond some point of taxation, then people will start doing things to avoid taxes exactly. or and stuff. And, and, of course, where that magic point is, is, is one of those mysteries. We really never know. Uh, we, can, we can change tax rates and see what's happened and then say, well, from where we were to now, we, we obviously know generally where that point was. Well, but I also will go back and say, this is not something new. This is not something that Laffler came out with. Right. Actually, Andrew uh, Mellon, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, back in the 1920s, uh, saw this. And he persuaded Coolidge to have a huge policy of reducing the tax rate. And under Coolidge, tax rates went down, tax revenues went up, and the federal debt went down. How is that so, so easily forgotten? You're right, Professor Ford. I've read a lot about that. That 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 point is so easily forgotten. Well, <laughs> uh, to plug a book uh, called Coolidge by Andy Shelves, uh, it's an amazing book. And after I read that book, Coolidge has become my favorite president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they now, say he died of a pauper. Well, but if you go through uh, history, it also worked. Same thing that the uh, revenue went up when um, Kennedy lowered the tax rate. Right. It went up when the revenue to the government went up when Reagan did it. It went up again when Bush did it. And guess what? It's going up again uh, now that Trump has done it. In part because it's stimulating to the economy. Isn't that right? Well, yes, but but the point is that the Laffler curve and in all those cases tells us that the maximum point was somewhere lower than where we were taxing people right. at. Right, right. Well, look, I'm paying, what, 30-something percent in federal taxes. I'm paying almost 10 percent in state taxes. I pay a, a tax on my car. My real estate taxes are several thousand dollars, right, for my home. Uh, I pay a sales tax every time I buy virtually anything in the store. Uh, so we are inundated with a bunch of hidden taxes. Our taxes are well over, well over half the money that we earn, and we get people like Elizabeth Warren saying, that ain't your money! 
<laughs> you didn't work for that yeah. money. You didn't earn that money. You know, when I was sitting at home studying for college, studying for graduate school, that really was Elizabeth Warren studying for me. <laughs> That's right. Mind you, she got herself a job claiming to be a minority um, and then foreclosing the opportunity to a true minority from taking that spot. But, you know, the leftists don't like to talk about the fact that often their claims about helping minorities are always after these uh, white, often men, uh, take spots. Now, I don't care what your pigment is. I don't care what your plumbing is. But the next time a leftist white man says, well, the next person we need to hire needs to be somebody else of a different race or uh, a gender, my response is, why don't you give up your job? Why are you holding out for the white patriarchy and, and, and preventing someone else from getting the job that they deserve? Give it up already. That's why you retired. Isn't it, Ford, to, to open up a spot? Oh, sure. Right. Uh, by the way, you, you touched on this, and, and I'm going to throw out something that I read not long ago from Thomas Sowell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we go around and talk about diversity. Diversity is good. Diversity this. We're doing it for diversity. But he has the question, just why is diversity good? Demonstrate that diversity is has some kind of magic to it uh, and for, on what grounds. And no one's answered that question to his satisfaction. And I've just recently come across that question. Yeah. What and- makes diversity in and of itself Good. And Thomas Sowell, a conservative African-American economist, just to point out. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we've only got about half a minute left. So, Ford, I want to thank you for the time that you gave us today. I want to thank Chris Corbett for joining us here in studio. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank uh, Ritz, Rick Peltz-Steele for calling in and giving so much of his time. I want to thank David Ray from the lieutenant governor's office. And most importantly, I want to thank... Dave Ellswick, for giving me this wonderful opportunity. Uh, I would not have been able to do it, obviously, without his kindness and his permission. And maybe one day in the future, I will do it again. Thank you so very much. God bless. All right. Thank you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com